right, welcome everybody to another episode of Morality Python Radio tonight. Episode 486. 486, Owen. When do you think we're going to get to 500? Um, after 499. Uh. (laughs) 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 Which one of us went to Philly Public Schools? I mean, like, clearly you don't know how to I went to Catholic School. Shame on you. you. Yeah, I don't know. It's fine. (laughs) But, uh, so, let's see. You've probably heard... um, the next guest, uh, our guest on many episodes. The one that still stood out to me was the episode uh, from Animals at Home podcast. Mm. And um, it's sort of where we got the idea for the Rough Scale show. Um, and it was from a paper that was written by our guest, Dr. Zach Laufman. And um, basically, it's going over the natural history and on all that stuff. And I was just so, I thought that episode was awesome. And uh, look what it inspired. So now we have the Rough Scale Show, and we're going to go into the Blackhead Show. And what else are we going to talk about, Owen? How many other species do you want to get? You should probably use your colubrid corner uh, somewhere mm. around the same I, I thing, mean, you know? I mean, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. There is a False Water Cobra show at some point Riley and I are going to uh-huh. record. So, uh, okay. And all this other stuff, I just I have to get Rob to stop screaming at me. So, <laughs> I mean, once, once I dial put him... He put out in. wrong information. I no. that too. I mean, that, that or I just—he's got more, and I just don't ask. And I, yes, we're fixing that. I promise. So, uh, so yeah, we'll figure it out. Okay. So, welcome to the show. How you doing? Uh, yeah. Great to finally get to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this is fantastic. Like I said earlier, I've been listening to you guys. Feels like forever. So <laughs> it does, no. doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I. Yeah, I, I'm very happy to be here. So we'll just leave it at that. Awesome. He he listened when I was your age, Owen, in my 30s. <laughs> I wasn't even around when you were in your 30s. I mean, uh, like, you know, that, that doesn't. It's not a uh, thing. So, so let's let's start at the beginning of the paper. Like, tell us a little bit about just from you. I mean, we've talked about it endlessly on the show, but uh, tell us about it. What inspired it? How you? Yeah, came from up the horse's with it. mouth is a little bit better than us just yeah. trying to regurgitate what you say. Yeah. What inspired it is I have kind of a dream job for for a herpetoculture person because I have to teach a herpetoculture class. And the herpetoculture class that I'm teaching, it's a it's a combination of herpetology, so just your classic, you know, natural history, systematics, evolution, ecology, conservation herp class, which is fairly standard. There's probably 50 of those taught across the country a year at colleges and universities and things. But then since we have the zoo science major here, I also have to teach the herpetoculture piece. And that's where the laboratory for that class comes into play. So I'm kind of basically inventing the assignments as we go. And one of the, and it's also to prepare people to work in a zoological Mm -hmm. setting. So I was trying to teach my students that it's real important for you to kind of know the biology and the ecology and the natural history of the animal that you're ultimately going to be tasked with keeping. So I had to make a document because that's what, you know, the students use as their roadmap to do an assignment. And I started, you know, fleshing this out, driving from work to home and then home to work. I've got about a 15 to 20 minute commute, uh, And I realized after doing that for about three weeks that I was really kind of nerding out with this and I was liking it. And then COVID hit 
And I'm a field biologist by trade. I don't know if they'll be able to see this, but I've got a great big crayfish poster behind me because that's what I <laughs> study out in the wild. And I knew with COVID, I wasn't going to be able to go and do field work. So I just decided I was going to write a herpetoculture paper because I have a herpetoculture lab as well that has students in it. And I thought, why don't I kill two birds with one stone? I can kind of flush out this assignment, but I can also at the same time maybe write something more than just a how-to for the lab. And it ended up being uh, the manuscript that I you know, submitted for publication, was fortunate enough to get through the peer review process, and now you know, it's published. So that's kind of the backstory in a nutshell, but it took, it, it, it took a while. I mean, I started thinking about this in February, and I think I actually began writing in May, June, and then I submitted in July, and then um, – you know, it's a peer-reviewed publication. So what right. that basically means is it's submitted, it goes before reviewers, and then the reviewers are equilibrate to a you know firing squad. I mean, it got eviscerated. Oh, great! And then I had to defend it and basically support it, and um, that process took about four months, and then ultimately it got published. So it was about a year-long process, I would say. Is it? This is sort of a off-topic subject, but uh, is that typically the length of time that that a that a, that a paper would take uh, to have be peer-reviewed, or does it depend on the subject? It really depends on the subject. Um, yeah. uh, I've had papers I submitted in you know about crayfish, not herbs per se. That I, I submitted on like you know the first of the month, and then they were peer-reviewed by the end of the month and then I made my changes that I had to and it was going for publication by the end of the following month so like a month and a half two month process but this one was a solid two and a half I don't remember because I'm trying to forget to be honest with you <laughs> is it just because <laughs> I think it was like a three and a half month process is so. it just because the reviewers didn't have anything to oh. do because of COVID so they were like fresh meat fresh meat I mean well, like, well <laughs> it, it was a weird paper because right. normally what happens is you'll have one or two reviewers, maybe three. Mm. And you start with the same reviewers and you know, my, and that's it through the end of the process. And I had what we affectionately refer to in you know, academics as reviewer one and reviewer two. I mean, there's literally memes about reviewer two because you always have a reviewer that says, you should go north. And then the next reviewer says, no, you need to go south. And you basically have to like thread this crazy right. task that's impossible <laughs> and make both entities happy. So, you know, to the credit of reviewer one and reviewer two, um, their comments were nothing but good. Like I made some dumb mistakes writing. Um, I omitted some things because um, you just like when you write or you're preparing a podcast or editing a podcast, you reach a saturation point where you just omit things that, you know, yeah. fresh eyes are going to see and include. Sure. Um, but I halfway through the review process thought I was done. And then the, the journal was like, oh, by the way, <laughs> we're going to let reviewer three come and play. I and reviewer three <laughs> doesn't think we should have animals in human care. And that was fun. Uh, um, trying to deal uh, with that. <laughs> so um, ultimately though, we made it through and the paper got published and, you know, that's the process. But I do think it's important for people to know, like, yeah, when, when you write a scientific article, um, yeah, it, it is, you have to like what you're doing because <laughs> you are going to reach a point in the, in the process, unless you're just an extremely 
badass writer, and I would argue I'm an okay writer. I'm not a badass writer. Um, that it, it becomes a labor of love, and you better love it to see it through to the end. Right. So, just slowly hitting your head against a concrete wall. Yes. Being like, it's not oh, slowly. It's <laughs> active banging. <laughs> just, please, <laughs> God, just stop it. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So no. That's great. Damn. All right. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean the pa- the paper's great. I think um you know, uh, for me like you know, I don't know about other people, but I'm I always geek out on the natural history of animals. Mm-hmm. To me that's the coolest part of the whole thing, you know. Um yeah. and you know, it it kind of uh I don't know. I, I, I guess I could have done that all along. But like <laughs> I was like, wow, yes, this is yes, genius. Eric, the information was <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> it was there. It's, and it's on your fingertips. But oh, like, right. I guess it I guess to me it just sort of opened up this uh and I would hope that it would for the listeners and all is like, you know, that the information is 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 pretty easy to get in today's day and age, you know, a lot of it. Yeah. And um you know, even the tips that you said about contacting the uh, um, the writer of a of a paper or something that you're trying to get a hold on, a lot of times they want to share that. And uh, if you just yeah. send them a message, sometimes still a couple of them did. I, I was surprised. Like, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, a lot of people think that academics like we're sitting up in this hypothetical ivory tower. Okay. Uh, but it's very lonely up there. And we, no, no, it's there. But... Yeah, yeah. And we like, you know, we put countless hours into this stuff and we publish these papers. And oftentimes there's like 20 people out of the billions of humans on planet Earth that care. But if the, it's all about quality over quantity, um, yeah. because if those 20 people are going to nerd out about this manuscript you wrote, yeah, of course you're going to give it to them. I mean, I study yeah. crayfish for crying out loud. Like, you know, everybody hits me up with like, aren't those bait? I'm like, yes, they're bait. There's more than one. Yeah, there's more than one. There's actually 400 that live in the United States, you know? And so when I get an email from anybody, it doesn't matter who they are. And they're like, hey, can I have that paper that you wrote on blah? You know, it's awesome. So of course yeah. I'm going to shoot it out. But I think there's this perception and I understand why, um, that you, know, you you can't touch the the professors and, and people like that, but oftentimes we're the most approachable people you're going to meet. Right. So, but there are whether we like to admit it or not, there are assholes among us, and there are definitely going to be some that are going to you know snub their nose and, and not interact. But you just sure. you don't get butthurt over that. Just right. move on with your day. Yeah, it, <laughs> I, I mean, I do enjoy that, and it always seems to be some sort of hard line between, especially in herpticulture, the hobbyist and the academic, because it's like, mm-hmm. you know, first off, we don't say genetic phrases correctly and make up yeah. words. So that, <laughs> I imagine, would infuriate an academic. It's kind of hilarious. Yeah. But, um, so there always seems that hard line, but being able, like, there is like movement there is able to bridge those gaps and there's kind of flow and i I definitely appreciated the inclusion of the natural history because coming from a potential of a zoo background that i was in it was the animal can tolerate this cool but should it like it's one of those things where Mm -hmm. you know if you look further into natural history even even with herpticulture they say you have to do this this and this to get your snakes to breed and nobody ever looks into why? Because yes. where they live does this, this, and this. Oh, it makes more sense. Yeah. So I definitely appreciated that. And, and that's where my my perspective being a field biologist kind of came into play. Because what's really cool is I, I did the herpetoculture thing, you know, 
mid nineties is when I started. And then all through undergrad, um, and through my master's degree at Marshall, I was in a herpetology lab. Uh, uh, you know, I had tons of animals and back then I was absolutely what you would call a keeper. Mm, right. Um, I wasn't breeding anything. I had the classic one off of this one off of that. Um, uh, and I, you know, was loving life, but even back then, because of the, you know, the academic background I had and the professors I had, I loved learning about the nerdy biology piece way more than reading about keeping it in, in, in human care. And then I would just kind of take what I read in the books and things like that and apply it to what I was doing as a keeper. And then I got out of herpetoculture, uh, came back in in 2016 for the zoo science major. And by then I basically been out in the field, seeing things, doing things. I learned how to get journal articles. I was writing journal articles. I understood the ecology piece. And it was just a very natural thing for me to do. And I realized with my students that they didn't know where to go to find this stuff. And I thought, well, if the students don't know how to actually go and just get this information that's readily available, maybe people in herpetoculture you know, would like to know that too. And that's why when I wrote the paper, I, I put it in a public, or sorry, an open access journal. And what that means is Anybody can get the paper. If you can get onto the internet, you can download this manuscript. So okay. that was that was part of it. What was really interesting is one of the peer reviewers early on said, like, is, who is the audience for this manuscript? This is one of the criticisms. Uh, it seems like private keepers are our uh, audience, and we really don't feel like they would seek this out. And, you know, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I wrote this like two page response. Like, <laughs> I'm fairly positive they would seek this out. They're starving for this kind of information. Um, you yeah. don't have to be in a university to like, want to know how to be the best possible keeper and to learn about natural history, because that's, that's what we all love. It's just a lot of people don't realize that's what you like, uh, because they just don't know what it is. So yeah, yeah. You know, the other aspect of it is, you know, I'm looking at it as so because I learned I'm just taking my experience with the rough scale. Right. And, and like I'm thinking, OK, if I ever do make it to the Kimberly, I uh -huh. have a better understanding of like where to maybe possibly find this species, what, what they're going to be doing, when they're <laughs> going to be doing it. When, we um, you know, so it could definitely <laughs> help with herping. I think also uh, when you learn about, you know, I, I don't know, I, I guess like. For me, it seems like reptiles have this rap of being this kind of boring pet, right? And <laughs> I guess, I guess if you're like, if you're keeping it just in a Depends box, on the paper species. With, well, I would yeah, really but you know like what it. I'm saying. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I'm just saying overview, right? But mm -hmm. like, when you really start to learn about, you know, I, like I was just reading this. I'm I'm doing one for with Owen oh, on nice. uh, timber rattlesnakes. I, I mean, with Rob on timber rattlesnakes, and um, yeah, sorry, I was going to take credit for that. No, part of my brain. Gonna, yes, yes, I was. <laughs> like Rob has nothing to do with this. Yeah, and so. like just learning about you know what they're doing, and for me, I can equate it because I'm living here where timber <laughs> rattlesnakes are. So yeah. it's like, oh, okay, this makes sense, and this makes oh, they're doing this. Oh, this is what they're doing. This is that, you know, and um, I don't know. It just gives me a whole new appreciation for just even the wild, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Not just so much of focused on captivity, but like you learn so much more, and I think you have a better appreciation for the wild. I don't know. That's kind of what I took from it. So I absolutely agree. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, you learn. One of the things that I love about learning the natural history of, of snakes, in particular, is that snakes do an awful lot of hurry up and wait. So they'll <laughs> they'll like hurry up and move someplace, and then they get to where they're going, and then they wait. 
like be it for ambushing or they're basking, they're thermoregulating, right. they're waiting for a mate. And the different postures that they they take with their coils or whether they're rest, resting, you know, elongate or they're doing something called cryptic basking where they kind of burrow down the substrate and they just have a little piece. When you learn what all those coil or sorry, what all those um, postures actually mean, when you stumble onto these things in the wild, yeah, it it makes it that much more cool that you understand when that snake's sitting there and it's resting with its head down it's not just sitting there it's actually probably on a game trail or a little mouse trail and it's hunting yeah but that exact same behavior you can witness in your enclosure and then you you can actually become a way better keeper because you're kind of in tune with all these little behaviors that otherwise if you don't understand the natural history or biology of the animal you know it's just a snake sitting in a box right Uh, Right. and that's what's been you know that aspect of this is what I think is is, is the coolest. Um, yeah. You really become in tune with the animal once you learn about what they're doing out in nature. Yeah, it's almost like unlocking snake language. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's it's pretty awesome. And I think for whatever reason, snakes seem to be that one that was late to the party. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you got frog, dark frog keepers. They got their everything nailed down, you know. Uh, right. It seems like monitor keepers and lizard keepers, they seem to have – you know, a good understanding, but snake guys, I don't know, <laughs> but we're catching up. We're yeah, catching up. we're definitely yeah. catching up. There's a yeah. good trajectory, which is yeah. nice. Finally. So, yeah. Yes. It, it, awesome. It's one of those things where it seems like people never really took for granted or it always seems like people are buying the snake for either the one is the pet where it's going to be kept in like a minimal kind of tank or whatever, or it's a breeding purpose where it's kept in like a, a rack or a bin or something like that. And I do like it. See that there's more speed being gained for like the naturalistic setup display <laughs> pet, because yes. there are certain species yeah. that have always kind of had that little niche, niche, whatever the makes nipper happy. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, but it seems like there are other species now that are starting to get into that, which is cool. Because I always thought, yeah, like Morelia and carpets could do that. Um, but hell, you could make a really badass enclosure for like a California king snake if you wanted to. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. Uh, like a great example of of a snake that if you keep, if you apply the natural history, you know, model or matrix or framework, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, that I put in the paper, and and you keep it a different way is a, a simple hognose snake because right. hognose snakes are fossorial, they burrow, uh, but what's really interesting about them is that they will, you know, they'll scuttle around on the surface and then wherever they are. At nighttime, they'll go find some place and dig a burrow, and then that's where they're going to over over um overnight. And then the next day, when the dawn comes up and the soil starts to warm up, they come up and then they go about their day. Mm. And I started keeping some hogs here at West Liberty with a soil substrate that mirrors what they have out in um Colorado, and they're totally doing it. And they're like so active during the day, and we move their basking spots, and they're kind of up and moving, and the lights go out, and then boom. You can actually watch them dig down in. Um, They're actually creating little burrows that they're now using every single day. So there's this kind of behavioral difference. And it's a flipping hognose snake. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So it just takes them to a whole new level um, when you keep them that way. So, yeah. yeah. See, go beyond putting a goddamn top hat on it and you can actually get to the natural history the cool part of it no monocles yeah no monocles no mustaches or anything like that no 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 it's an animal not a toy (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I think I think uh, one of the topics that I wanted to get your take on, because well, let me say this first. First, I love you and Joe's talk about taxonomy. Yeah, I learned so much in that episode, um, and you know the whole idea of where subspecies come from, and you know why why there's two different camps, and you know, and to me, every time I hear about rat snakes. I just immediately think they're the American version of a of a carpet python. Like yeah. to me, they're just they're the same thing where they integrate in certain spots, and this one looks different than that one, but yet genetically they're the same. And you're you're not like, wrong. Yeah. So yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the people that are in Australia could care less about them. Yeah. Just like we could care less. Yeah. About what the hell? Thing. Like it's. I mean, too close. Yeah. 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 yeah they, but, they even fill a similar ecological niche. Or yeah. niche. niche. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, but I thought one of the one of the, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood aspects of keeping snakes in particular is snake digestion <laughs> and how it works. How often snakes eat? What you know? All these things. And mm-hmm. I thought, like, who better to get some some good solid advice from or some thoughts from, but, uh, but from you. So I don't know. Let's, what do you, what do you got? Let's dive into it. Let's yeah. Dive in. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's more than 2,500 species of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Oh, we're this starting yeah. here. Okay. And, and well, yeah, all right. <laughs> but, but what the point I'm trying to make is that I think within herpetoculture, everybody kind of tends to want to put everybody in the same box and, <laughs> Can't do that. You right. you you right. cannot do that when it comes to feeding, you know, snakes feeding rates, um, ha- the size of the prey item you're feeding, like all that kind of stuff. So you have to have a really good understanding of, uh, you know, a little bit of understanding of snake evolution goes a real long way for a keeper. And with with snakes, we've got these different radiations, and the, the radiation you guys are most, you know interested in we're not going to do a deep dive down you know that path but we have the boids which are the boas pythons and then this kind of handful of really obscure guys they're metabolically um set up very very different and at the same time kind of similar to the other major one of the other major radiations which are the colubroids and the colubroids oh, are things like colubrids <laughs> and lipids and, you know all those guys mm-hmm. And then vipers are kind of like right in the middle. Okay. So okay. each one of those has a different approach to digestion. Right. Um, and the pythons and boas, but pythons specifically, they, their way of going about digestion is absolutely insane. Like it, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we can dive into that if you want to. Please. Okay. I, yeah, please. <laughs> so, first thing that's important to know is that, uh, there's this concept in ecology I talk about it in the paper. Mm. Um, it's real important for people to to do a little bit of a deep dive, in my opinion. It's just bit, it's this concept we call life history. So every organism has a life history. Uh, and, and if you take away life and you just use the word history, that's it. So you're born, you're a little you know carpet python, you hatch out of the egg. You are at basically 0.1% of your life is over. And then every single second, you're ticking away towards 100% of your life's over, and you're, and you're going to basically die. Right. So if you make it to be an old snake, which we call in ecology a geriatric, you're going to go through different phases of life history. And if you're a biologist, you're, we're going to say neonate, which basically means you're a newborn baby. And then you, you segue over to this thing called juvenile, which is basically 
uh, you know, in humans, I always say it's like a 10 or 11 year old. They're definitely not a baby, but they're definitely not an adult. Mm. Then you reach sexual maturity, which is when you become an adult and then you lose the ability to reproduce. You undergo this process called senescence. You're geriatric. You're old. Okay. Each one of those life history states is going to go about digestion differently. Uh, And that's something I think that keepers need to kind of keep in mind Mm. is that, you know, the idea like I feed the python a mouse once a week. I feed the python a mouse once a week. There's a time in that life history where that might be okay, like neonate to juvenile, maybe, Mm -hmm. but it it depends because out in the wild, uh, I promise you every little baby Morelia that gets a chance to pound a skink is gonna. Yeah. And right. you, I haven't been to Australia. You were in Australia. You saw, I'm sure, how many skinks are running around. Thousands. Yes. So think about the probability of a baby Morelia eating in a day versus an adult guy. carpet yeah. eating in a day. Right. So that's the kind of thing we need to think about when we're actually feeding our snakes. And I don't think that that, you know, when people no. yell at each other about, you're, you're breaking the snake, you're feeding it too much. Well, right. Am you I? know. Yeah. Yeah, you got to think about that aspect of their biology. And that's where the, the prey item and the amount of fat and muscle and you know, all that kind of stuff comes into play. So in the neonatal snakes as well, because they're always growing, they're, they're literally growing more, their mechanism of digestion is very different than the mechanism of an adult mm-hmm. python. And the adult pythons are the ones that are kind of infamous for this kind of boom bust digestion. It's also called pay before pumping. That's the like fancy name for it. And so basically, yeah, they, they're, if they get the chance to eat something, they're gonna, Yeah. but based off what we've, what biologists have been able to determine from their biology, seems like they're probably eating. If you were to kind of average it out somewhere in the neighborhood of once every 15 days, if it's really good hunter mm-hmm. to maybe once every 50 days, if it's a really good hunter, so let's go with the 50-day snake. That animal is going a real long time without anything in its digestive system. Right. And what many people don't realize about digestive systems is they're very active systems. And what that means is anything that's active in a living thing requires energy. Right. And they don't want to burn any extra energy uh, in a day than they, they need to. So what pythons have evolved, which is insane and awesome, is that they basically let the inner lining of their their stomach and most of their intestines atrophy. So they like reabsorb the outermost layer that does the digestion, and we we call it the mucosa. Mm-hmm. And um, by absorbing that that those active cells, if you will, are are limited. So it's not always letting out a little bit of digestive you know enzymes and mucus and all that kind of stuff, which lowers the metabolic need for it. When they make a kill. What they do is they they swallow that prey item, and now we know that in the process of making the kill, they're getting excited. You know, a hormone rush happens, and that we won't go down this path, but that initiates this crazy pathway that basically tells their gut, "Wake up!" And it wakes up, and it starts to basically undergo this crazy cellular division called mitosis, and it increases in volume by like. 14, 25, 35, 45%. And now it's active. Okay. Uh, And it's going to be active so that it can basically pull every bit of nutrient out of that prey item as it can over the next five to 10 days. 
but because it's active, now they need more metabolic, you know, intake. So the snake's blood chemistry changes. This is, I know I've heard people on here talk about the, the blood viscosity changes. The right. blood goes from basically being normal blood to almost like maple syrup. It gets real thick. Uh -huh. um, their respiration rate goes through the roof. So they're basically bringing in as much oxygen as they possibly can. And it, I, I heard one person making a, a equilib equilibrate it to, it's like a human eating a hamburger while jogging. Because that's basically what they're doing. Because their oh, metabolism's up. They're still right. getting the energy from the hamburger. But they're going but, nuts. Like, but they're going nuts. But man. we don't see that. So right. as a keeper, this is the whole idea where if you feed your python every freaking week, you never let it come down. And that's why they burn out. So um, you've got to let that whole process have a beginning, a middle, an end, and then we're good. So if you, so, if you constantly – if you're feeding like – Let's say twice a week because you're a psychopath. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're you're basically putting that thing on a treadmill twice a week. Yeah, and it, and it's never letting it to calm down fully. Exactly. Oh my! It's God. never letting it calm down. But in the wild, though, snakes have a way to basically. It, it's just like all of us. If we start jogging now, you know, I've not jogged ever. So yeah. <laughs> jogging. 10 minutes in, I'm dying. Yeah. But man. if I'm jogging like every day, I'm going to inevitably reach kind of like a runner's high. Right. And, and the snakes are able to do that because in certain parts of, you know, pythons and boas across the range, many of these animals have one opportunity to feed. So Bradley is the classic example because when the birds migrate through Alice Springs, Kill that's everything. when they're just, you yeah. know, pounding the hell out of everything they possibly can. And they're eating, 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 eating. During that, you know, month, their respiratory state is going to stay elevated and, and that's okay because inevitably it's going to end. Right. It'll crash. But if you've got your, you know, ball Python, berm carpet, whatever, and you're like, Hey, watch this thing eat a rat. You chuck in a rat. And then a week later, let watch it eat a rat. And you do that for three freaking years. Yeah. <laughs> it is inevitably <laughs> going to burn out. That's just, <laughs> I mean, so, it's, it's funny because you think about herpticulture, all the different, species that die at like three or four or something mm -hmm. like that is that just because they shouldn't have been fed at the same rate as like yeah. a burmese python a retic or something like that exactly jeez but, but there's other snakes that don't do that right. so you know my false water cobras uh, i have absolutely no problem whatsoever and and the reason why is i read all the manuscripts that i possibly get my hands on including feeding studies from the wild no issue whatsoever feeding them a small to moderate sized prey item once every five days. I'd never do that to a carpet python, ever. Right. Okay. <laughs> you don't do that to a false water cobra. It's going to be real interesting when you open the cage door and it attaches to your face because, like, <laughs> they come out ready to eat right. because evolution's entrained them in the environments where they live. Food is ever present. And so they're able to basically feed a little bit every other day. They don't have this boom bust thing. And right. this also explains why cycle feeding works because right. yeah, cycle right. feeding, natural history again. You know, when I heard about cycle feeding the first time on your podcast, however many years ago that was, <laughs> I was, I, I remember thinking, oh, this makes total sense because this follows their annual cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and they're probably animals that have a, you know, a season where prey becomes hyper available. That's right. exactly what's going on. So, um, it, and the other thing is these periods where you're feeding a lot and then their respiration goes up. It wouldn't shock me at all 
if that has a co-evolved aspect that's right alongside reproductive physiology, which tells male snakes, all right, produce sperm or female snakes. All right, it's time to ovulate because they, they have the resources physiologically to not only put towards growth, but they can dedicate some of that energy towards yoking up eggs or, or doing something like that. You think about it, you know, right now it's the calm period and everybody's uh, pythons are starting to warm up. I'm going to go downstairs this weekend. I'm going to feed all my breeders. Mm-hmm. This, I, I guarantee you, like I feed Saturday, Sunday is going to be the most locks I'll have seen all season. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, you know, the, the one thing I always struggle with, like um, I'm in the room now, right? And I look at the diamond python and right now I'm not feeding them because they're they're down, they're cold, the temperatures mm-hmm. are cold at night, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but still that, you know, the smaller ones I have, they're coming out and they're doing the typical, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, that weight. So like, I, I wonder like, <clears throat> is that, is that cue a good cue to look at to, It'd say, okay, it's time for a meal. But then in the back of my head, I also think like, well, are they pre-programmed to always do that because they don't know when the next, especially with pythons, probably mm-hmm. more so, right? That, they, that they're yeah. geared to just sort of be in that position waiting. Just, just in, in case. case. Yeah. You never know. You know? That, yeah. that, uh, yes to all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's where understanding life history biology is pretty cool because Another thing that ends up happening with with any animal, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, this is like basic ecology 101, is Mm -hmm. that before animals reach sexual maturity uh, and they're feeding, pretty much all of the energy they're acquiring from what they're eating is going towards growth. So if you have a juvenile or a sub-adult, it's not quite to adulthood. It wouldn't shock me at all if it is permanently in the hunting phase because biologically – most animals at that point in their life, it's all about get food and grow because yeah. you basically want to reach sexual maturity to get your DNA into the next, you know, into the next generation and, and reach your Darwinian objective. At the same time, you just want to get bigger so the freaking monitor doesn't eat you. Right. So that's another part of it. You need um, to stay alive. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but once you reach sexual maturity and you reach adult size, the time the lights just went out of my office. Um, that switches and when you're you're feeding you're putting more of that energy you got to put that energy towards the creation of eggs if you're a girl the creation of sperm if you're a guy right and you don't want to do that if you don't have the energy to do it if you don't have the stockpile of um you know physiological potential i.e food in your gut to do it so it could be that might be why you see one of your animals that's not quite an adult doing it, but the adults are just kind of hanging out, not doing anything because they're in brumation mode because they're more oriented towards potential reproduction. Right. Right. Yeah, that, make, that makes total sense. Yeah, right. The, 100%. Kid, the little guys don't ever turn off. The big guys shut no. down. Like I can shove my hand in their cage and they won't care. Like, yeah. It's just <laughs> go out, get away. You know, like it, I, I get that. So uh, shifting gears just for a second, like mm. oh, we're switching species uh, or genus or type of snake whatever you want to say um <laughs> so with colubrids when they go into like let's say north american colubrids when they go into hibernation or brumation whatever is it called hibernation still now didn't it, change it's technically brumation okay all right okay so when they well, go into it could be hibernation it doesn't matter it's right. the same <laughs> yeah, here if you say estivation you're right oh. because estivation is just a period of physiological rest so there you <laughs> okay. go so do they have the same type of processes in their system 
that they're able to shut down for, I mean, what are they, four or five months? How, like, how, how do they Depends handle the it as opposed to a python? Depends yeah. on the winter. They're, yeah, they're, they're a little different um, physiologically because here again, back to the point I made before, if a little bit of evolutionary history goes a long way. So understanding that. So the colubrids are, are a very different lineage of snake. So that basically means that, you know, the, the machinery that keeps them alive is just, it runs differently. It's the difference between like looking at a pickup truck and looking at a minivan. Mm -hmm. They both get you down the road, but they do it differently. Um, With North American colubrids, you know, most of them evolved with at least some period of time in the year, we're going to drop our temperature. Uh, But you're a rat snake down in near Miami you're, you're not going to really drop low freezing ever. The rat snakes here in West Virginia, we just did a month and a half, I think, where we got above freezing a day. Right. Yeah. So, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. they have to go down underground. And and what they have is during the wintertime, what many people don't realize is they actually have, if they hit it right, uh, a temperature constant, which is they get to about 50 degrees and then they don't get an upswing or downswing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that constant temperature for them is what triggers the hormone cascades. And what they're doing is they're basically prepping their reproductive organs so that when they come out of hibernation, there's a, temp- a thermal trigger that tells them, all right, you know, let's start making eggs or all right, let's activate the testes so that we're going to be able to, to produce sperm. If you're a snake in the, in the, Tropics, subtropics, it's very different because they don't have that. They have rain dry. Uh, And so you kind of have a a dichotomy in the approach as to how this all goes down. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. And and a basic understanding of natural history, that's what what helps you be a better keeper. So absolutely. Owen? No, nothing. You're you're (laughs) good so far. (laughs) <laughs> nothing i don't know you always got me that look i liked it better when i didn't see your face thank I, you I, I don't think i should see me either <laughs> doesn't, uh, it doesn't work this way so. oh, that's great so like you know i think one of the things that um ha- that happens a lot that you see in the hobby um where i and you know I, i've seen keepers that do cycle feed don't feed a lot mm-hmm. and then their snake dies and yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, they do a necropsy on it and, you know, there's still fat bodies. The obese. Yeah. You yeah. know, you're sort of like, where'd I go wrong? Yeah. Well, there's one thing that a snake in nature is going to be doing that. And I don't care how big the enclosure is that yeah, you yeah. give it and give okay. care, which is it's going to almost certainly be moving. Mm. And then something that's a little bit controversial, but scientifically it isn't, is that just stress causes you to metabolize fat yeah and the fact that we get these insanely fat snakes in human care tells me they're not very stressed uh they're not metabolizing that fat uh a snake out in nature it it is going to have more stressors associated with it i mean even down to i'm not talking about like oh i'm stressed mentally Mm. they have parasites and and parasites are going to cause a a potential immune response and that immune response is going to cause uh stress hormone we, the stress hormone in snakes is called corticosterone so corticosterone is going to start pulsing and then that's going to raise the metabolic rate or the respiration rate and then that's going to lead to potentially 
digesting or metabolizing fat. In human care, they don't have that. So, you know, I, I, I explained this once to one of my students and they're like, so does that mean that we should just like grab a stick and poke the hell out of our snakes every day? I mean, and I was kind of <laughs> like, well, I mean, no, we're not going to do that. But at the same time, that would elicit that stress response. Um, and I'm not advocating for eliciting a stress response. Please don't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, that's going to have an impact on their, on their metabolism. So what Lori does to kind of promote Lori's way of keeping, which I am definitely a proponent of, mm. um, by kind of making them the snakes leave the enclosure or explore or move around, uh, that's only going to help them. I mean, the simple act of opening up your cage door if you have an enclosed room and just letting the snakes wander, mm. uh, that goes a long way. I have the water cobras are in here with me in my office, and I close my door all the time and just let them roam for literally hours on end. And when I do that, they don't stop moving. And mm. before I did that, they were getting fat. There's no other way to say it. Uh, right. And now they have muscle tone, their body conditions down, and each animal gets to roam the office at least once a week for three hours. But I try to make it so that they're doing it multiple times a week. I don't right. think we as keepers really kind of take that into consideration. Um, yeah. and, and I think that that's definitely part of it. But at the same time, it, it's also a little bit unrealistic. I, I'm not expecting, you know, someone who has 400 snakes to be like, everybody gets Open to roam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Playtime, you just time. let them all out. Yeah, at one time. Yeah. Well, it's how you get down so, to 200 think, snakes pretty quickly. I thought I thought that this was pretty interesting that I saw saw somebody do. Um, I can't remember. It was, I think it was I think it was somebody with retics, the dwarf retics or something, and they had like this attachment in the middle of the room that was like uh, it looked like this big huge circle of a brent like yeah. like a half of a globe or something and it's like they could just kind of like put the snake up there and it would sort of entwine within these you know and just sort of chill out up at the top as they would clean the enclosure or whatever they had to do and i was like wow that's a pretty good idea if you could yeah. uh make that happen it's similar to what Lori does uh yep and then the other thing about fat human or sorry fat snakes in human environments is that we're feeding them food that is fatty yeah so when, when these animals are, are eating prey from the wild, it's probably much more nutritious in the end uh, than a laboratory rat. I mean, for example, um, snakes that feed heavily on uh, frogs and fish in nature, when we convert them to a rodent diet, that's absolutely point. being done out of convenience for us because oh, yeah. we all have <laughs> a couple hundred rats in the freezer. Um, but when you digest a frog or a mouse the, the the percent protein fat uh minerals so on and so forth is very very different uh and they're going to metabolize that and, and basically get better proteins out of it in the end so then the laboratory mouse so it's real important to make sure that the, the the mice and rats you're feeding are you know they have a really good diet themselves i think that that's something we don't oftentimes um consider uh so yeah that makes sense. You know, it's uh, what is that? Uh, you get out what you put in. So yep, exactly. You know, and that's why it's like uh, I, I want to say that some of the rodent guys will always argue is like oh, that guy feeds dog food to his rodents and this guy does rodent block. And that's why it should go. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know one's better. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> I know one's better, but is it really what it should be like how it should go? But yeah, yeah. Um, so. 
Well, I guess it would be like sort of like with us, right? If you go mm-hmm. catch an animal in the wild and you hunt it and you, you kill run, it, and you, you have eat to kill it, it, you drag it, yeah. it's, you're, you're going to get a much energy. healthier animal right. than you know a farm uh, raised, uh, you know, industrial yeah. farm uh, exactly animal. You know, that's sitting in a pen <laughs> that's yeah. not moving, crash and, fed you know, animal mm-hmm. that's been running its entire life versus right. that. Yeah, so. Do you think do you think it's um what's your thoughts on like the actual prey species itself? Do you think that that matters like are we doing a disservice to oh, our animals by not feeding them what they eat in the wild? The verdict's out. You know, as okay. a scientist this is something that I would love well, I have every intention cuz I have these wonderful things called graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> So we're absolutely going to be studying that. I think with certain species of snake, uh, converting them to rodent diets from maybe a, an amphibian-based diet or a, a, a fish diet, it's definitely going to lead to uh, hepatolipidosis, which is fatty liver disease, um, mm. and just an increase of fat. Uh, I also don't think that we give birds enough credit. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so in the wild... Uh, you know, big, chunky, somewhat large rodents really aren't that common. Um, right. But birds are freaking everywhere. everywhere. And when you actually start looking at the diets of lots of snakes, not all snakes, but a lot of snakes and pythons in particular, and you start looking at the diets from the field, birds become are, are always a prevalent prey item. I mean, uh, Morelia is a great example. If you don't find them on the ground, they're up in a tree. And the likelihood of them finding a bird up there is probably higher than finding a, a rodent. So right. just simply segueing over to more quail, chicks, things like that uh, is important. And then the other thing with diet is diversity. You got to have diversity uh, that, that because then you're going to get your different macronutrients. Um, you know, the, 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 the nutritional value of a quail is actually very different than the nutritional value of a chick. And a mouse is very different than the nutritional value of a rat. Like Mm. many people don't realize that if you can feed your animal, a quail, a chick, a rat, a mouse, you're kind of said you're you're getting all those macronutrients in there. And that's probably going to be the best thing in the end for it. Um, But with the the rodentiferous snakes, the snakes that are eating rodents with the snakes that are, you know, feeding on birds, I think our classic diet's fine. Uh, I'm a massive fan of a group of colubrids called dipsadids, which um, hognose snakes are in there, falsies are in there, barons, racers, museranas, all those guys. And one of those snakes that is has just entered herpetoculture is tricolor hognose snakes. <laughs> and this is an animal that uh, in herpetoculture, everybody talks about the fact that they live to be eight years old. Like, do not make it past eight years old. And oh, no. <laughs> I, I did a I did a big deep dive on them, and I come to find out. Now, granted, there has not been a, di- a, a study on their diet in the wild uh, but they have two close relatives and one of them was studied intensively there's not a single record of, of that group of snakes eating rodents in nature there's not one they are eating amphibians and uh lizards and that's it and so okay. i started talking around nobody's feeding their their snakes those except for one guy and he's been feeding them reptilinks he's the only person i know of who has a tricolor hognose snake that's over eight years old. Well, all right. That makes well, there a lot you of go. sense. Yeah. So okay. I think that, <laughs> you know, taking, so in that situation, you're taking a mouse, which has a tremendous, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's the healthiest 
you know, most veganed out organic mouse ever, it right. is going to have more fat, cholesterol, all that than uh, uh, the fattiest frog ever. Right. So in that situation, you know, just kind of ignoring the biology and natural history of the animal for our convenience because we have mice in the freezer. Yeah, that's Chills a problem. at eight years old. But then yeah. now there's the also the, the, the part of it is that like kind of like what you said with the stressors and everything like that. You know, you can get the leanest, healthiest mouse in captivity ever, but it's still going to have fat on it because it doesn't have the stressors of trying yeah. to be killed, of having a parasite exactly. load and all this <laughs> other crap. And it's like, so basically we're, you're going to have some fatty deposits on your yeah. snake because there's fatty deposits on the mouse. And the same reason that that's on the mouse is the same reason it's going to be on your snake. Yeah. But this but is a, a horrible th- cycle. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a ray of light, which oh, thank is, God. <laughs> and it only involves one sex. Shit. Um, yeah. Uh, female snakes do need. Now, granted, I do not want to get flamed for what I'm saying. So listen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. What I am saying. Please don't. They need a little bit to uh, a bit of extra fat, if you will, prior to uh, producing eggs, because there's this. The actual process of uh, the eggs going from the ovary down to the fallopian tube is a follicle, and then they go from the follicle up into, you know, they grow, if you will, um, during that ovulation process. That's known as vitellogenesis. That's the big fancy word. And basically, those fat stores that are along a snake, they serve a functional purpose for the females because they're going to take that fat and they're going to basically convert it into their eggs, and then that's what's going to ultimately lead to the eggs getting yoked up. So right. if you try to breed a female and she does not have those fat deposits and she becomes gravid, you can actually cause a lot of physiological harm because she's going to start pulling fat from other parts of her body where she needs it. Uh, right. One people, one thing that people don't realize is like every neuron in your body, including your bunch of neurons called your brain, they're all sheathed in fat. So we, we you know, fat is not the enemy. We need some fat. It's just, you know, when you feed your, your carpet, jump jumbo triple x rats every other week it only really needs one of those every two months versus every other week so you just kind of have to to balance it out that's all yeah so the idea of feeding the female a couple extra meals or a bigger Bigger, meal or whatever you know going into the breeding season is 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 not a that's that's kind of how i do it right as we get closer to the breeding season you know but she goes through that fast as well you know when the temperatures drop down um, but, uh, you know, yes. th- that's another thing that amazes me about snake digestion. And this is, I learned this from just seeing in the wild. It's like, we have this, at least I had this idea that, you know, if a snake eats and it's below 70 degrees, it's going to die. die. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It'll be and it's dead. Like, yeah. Then you go to the wild and you're like, huh, it's 70 <laughs> degrees right and now. Thing's gotta, and, they uh, eat a possum. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. That's that, not right. <laughs> That becomes bad for them if they they aren't able to get their body temp up to get the digestive enzymes going. So uh, weird thing about snake digestion, this is another fun little factoid, Mm. is that as mammals, we're warm-blooded. So our digestive system has a pH that's very acidic all the time. What's really cool about snakes is that they can – when they are actively digesting – they're actually able to change the acidity of their stomach. It becomes more acidic. And then when they're not digesting, they don't want to produce all the mucus and everything to buffer it because that relies on that that, uh, 
energy thing I was talking about. They don't want to waste any extra energy. So they can, they, they, it, they don't think I'm going to change my stomach acid today. It just kind of happens passively, but it will then their stomach secretions will go back towards neutral. So they'll basically go back towards a pH of seven. So they have this kind of fluctuation. So yeah. when they get something in there and it gets to be cold, the acidity of the, the stomach acid itself, it's still going to be doing the digestive process. What's not happening when they get cold is they're not absorbing um, what they're digesting. They need to get okay. warmer to get their physiology up to do it. And okay. just like us, if you get too much acid in your stomach, you puke. puke. So that's part of the reason why when you feed a snake and it gets too cold, um, it'll you, you, you get that like semi-digested, nasty, Ooh. horrific rat. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, you know, you've been cold for a while. I don't understand why the digestion. Well, that's kind of what's going on there. So, okay. yeah. But no, they'll, they'll digest at low temperatures. Um, if you dive into the wonderful world of, you know, Asiatic rat snakes, which are one of my favorites, Oreo cryptophis, the bamboo rats, um, oh. they're digesting at like 65 degrees. <laughs> if, if they get to 80 or 81 and you feed them, they regurgitate because it's too hot. Too so hot. like, right. yeah, it, it totally like, I'm with you. It does blow your brain, you know, but, but yeah. So you sort of said that um, vipers were in a different category when it comes to this. What What's different about them and how their digestion works? So what's cool about vipers is the venom itself. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of theories as to why snakes evolved venom in the first place. Uh, and people have a tendency to think like, oh, they evolved it to defend themselves. But oftentimes with animals, evolving something that complicated for defense there's there's these trade-offs here and and if you think about it you're a viper you know a proto viper back in the day and you're 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 trying to evolve a new you know strategy and there's and it's not like you sit there and think what am i going to evolve today i'm not saying <laughs> that <laughs> but, you know the evolutionary process is is starting uh, it, it, it's a lot more simpler than that in reality the one that's going to survive is the viper that sees the predator and goes oh crap and slithers away you know, right. Yeah. That's it. the one that sits there like I defend myself now. You're going to get killed. <laughs> and that's the work, and then they die. Exactly. <laughs> the idea that venom evolved initially as a defensive strategy, it's kind of, it, it's a little bit nonsensical. And what venom is good at though is it's really good at starting the digestive process before you ingest your prey. And if you think about a snake, like a timber rattlesnake up on the mountains around us here in you know Appalachia. Uh, they they die, they make that kill on a chipmunk or a gray squirrel, and they swallow it. That thing weighs like twenty five to thirty percent of their body mass, so they're not going to be moving. So they right. want to digest that thing as quick as possible. So when they envenomate the um, the squirrel, they're basically injecting a whole bunch of proteolytic enzymes into the middle of the squirrel. Proteolytic enzymes digest protein. Squirrels are made of protein, so basically. They're starting the digestive process before they even eat it, which is kind of cool. So they then bring that in their stomach, and then the stomach starts digesting it. So you're basically – squirrel's getting digested from the venom inside of it. It's getting digested from outside, and it's kind of all working uh, together. And that's probably why venom evolved – well, there's one idea that that could be the the reason why venom and vipers in particular came to be. And then it just turns out that if you can digest your prey – 
You can also happily digest your predator when it tries to bite, like eat you. You bite them and they go, ouch, that hurts like a son of a bitch. They're right. not going to bother you anymore. So it ends up having the secondary evolutionary effect of defense, which is, you know, kind of cool how that whole dynamic oh, yeah. would work. So because they have that, they're, they're just very different. They're one of the most efficient snakes when it comes to digestion. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Timber rattlesnakes are a great example of this. There's been plenty of studies that show that they might kill in a given season one large squirrel or maybe three large squirrels or, or intermediate sized squirrels. And that's it. Like that's literally all they're going to eat for that year. Mm-hmm. And, and they can totally be okay with that because when they actually go through the digestive process, they're so remarkably efficient at getting every single bit of sugar, glucose, whatever you want to call it out of that prey item. Uh, through the actual digestive process. And it takes them a while. That's the other thing. They're mm-hmm. not like in a, you know, they want to get the mass of the squirrel down quickly, mm-hmm. but they're going to literally eke out every single little macromolecule they can out of it. And the macromolecules are what they're ultimately utilizing for energy. Right. Which is, which is, well, I had a couple thoughts. One, I don't know if you guys saw it, but this, this kind of was interesting to me. Um, I, it was on Facebook somewhere, but there's there this African rock python mm. that was in a tree, right? Which right. I never, you know, you don't think of African rock pythons. They're usually on the tree. ground, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, they're in the ground or in water waiting right. by a, you know, a drinking hole or something like that. And then it was eating birds. And again, yeah. you know, every time I think of an African rock python, I'm thinking of a gazelle or, yeah. you know, the, you, like, the see extremes, this all the time. The extreme <laughs> versions, the ones where it's like that one ate a kangaroo. Like, okay, yeah, yeah we got it. That's not every single one though. So, yeah. So I have a, I, I, I kind of, w- with carpets, it seems that, and again, this could just be my perception and not reality. It seems like every time I see a wild carpet python, it has a meal in it that's like mm. seven times the size of his body. Probably why they caught it, you know. And I was talking to Rob the other day, and he was like, you know, I used to think you guys were crazy when you would give a a baby carpet a hopper. Yep. And he would be like, that's just insane. And I guess he's coming from, you know, rhino Asian colubrids yeah. where it's like you, you're feeding smaller meals. But mm-hmm. like he's saying that it kind of like amazed him that the, the snake took it and was no no worries, no yeah. problems at all. Is Does the size of the prey matter or is it just it just totally it, oppor- op- opportunistic? Uh, most snakes are opportunistic. Right. Um, but the ambush predators of the world, they're going to take – any prey item they can. It does not matter what it is. If you sit by the tree for literally days and days and days on end, if the little if the if the prey item comes up that's on the small end of your continuum of prey size, Kill it. you're eating it. <laughs> this giant ass prey item comes up, you know, you're basically gonna be like, Well, here we go, and then you give it a go. Right. Uh, and that can explain why, like with olive pythons, the images of them eating freshwater crocodiles, right. you know, that's just insane. But right, if you right. think about it, they're total opportunistic w- with what they're doing. You know, that same olive would totally probably, you know, eat a bird that's one fiftieth the size of the crocodile if the opportunity presented itself. Um, with col- with colubroids, they're a little different. They 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 have the luxury, many of them, because they're so active, that they have high probability of finding the proper sized prey. So okay. like. Uh, just keeping with the snakes locally, common water snakes, they have a tendency not to, or Nerodi in general, you don't, now on occasion you will actually see the derpy Nerodia that will grab onto like a bullfrog that's, you know, 
point times its size. Right. But most of the time, they don't do that. They'll slow their past that, and they'll kind of you know focus on the prey items that, that are available to them. That's because prey availability to those animals is much higher. So they're basically have evolved the ability to be cho- uh, choosy about what they're doing. Okay. And, and that's where circle back understanding the natural history of your animal becomes real important because if you understand that whole opportunistic aspect of their biology feeding the baby poplin or uh, coastal whatever it may be the 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 hopper makes sense whereas Mm. i would never offer that to a north american colubrid it's going to look at it and be like what the hell are you doing makes you (laughs) sure yeah (laughs) it's going to think it's uh the the, you know coming after it's a predator yeah right well, and then there's the thing of like, I think certain python species are opportunistic to a fault. There was that yeah. picture running around, what is it, of the carpet python that was trying to kill and eat an echidna. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, dude, that. Yeah. like that is not going to work out for you. And it's like, I guarantee you that thing saw movement and went, I will, like, yeah. not, didn't even think it was all pure reaction. Bite, wrap, and then I'll figure it out afterwards. Like, it's, yeah. So, so there was some thought, and no, and you can remember this back in the I remember in, like their early days of NPR, right? There was some oh. discussion about as far as like the size of the prey. Like if you're getting yes. into that juvenile stage, right, and you're feeding something, and you do you bump it up a size of of prey, all of a sudden you see this huge growth spurt. Yeah, you yes. know, right? Is there? There's is that... there's absolute truth to that. Okay, okay. and and the reason why is what people. Uh, if you, and this is available online. You can you can find this, but the nutritional um, constituents of a, a, a hopper mouse versus an adult mouse are very very different. Um, and so when you basically bump up to that larger prey item, in effect, you're going to inevitably reach a point with your prey item. And I don't know where what it is exactly off the top of my head, but I actually talk about this in my class. You're going to hit the point where you have the the kind of Goldilocks zone of nutrition for growth. You have nutrition in the prey item that the animals are are feeding on. And then you also have, you're at the right point in the life history where the animal is just primed and ready to fire off and grow. And when those two kind of lines on the curve meet, that's when you get that explosion of growth. And it normally happens with when you make the conversion from either small adult mouse or just adult mouse. Mm. Um, You're getting out of those kind of, uh, developmental mice, which have a whole lot of like collagens and keratins and, and different um, uh, aspects to them that aren't necessarily loaded with uh, energy that can be allocated towards growth. Right. Okay. No. And, and one thing we don't think about, like when you feed a mouse, um, it, we all see the, the, the back end of that, which is the poop that comes out of the snake. And this is one of those moments where I was kind of like, huh, that's weird because my lab's uh, done a lot of work now with crypto and in snakes. And mm. we, I, I have a couple students who are you know studying that for their thesis. And so we're testing and we're, we're gathering poops all the time for that. We're also gathering poops all the time for this uh, testing corticosterone levels and poop to see, to come up with an objective measure of stress. And so we've just spent a lot of time looking at snake poop. Like, way too much time more than you ever thought years. you were ever going to yeah i know things about snake crap i never thought i could <laughs> or should and, and one of the, those students was that was working on the corticosterone project um we were talking with a, a, the detroit zoo they have a, a welfare group there that was really interested in the hormones 
and and they were asking the question like when we test corticosterone and snake poo are we actually getting the hormone level of the snake or are we getting the hormone level of the mouse that they ate because all of their poop was hair that then led to well what percentage of snake poop is hair which then led to a graduate student drying out snake poop in an oven and then putting it in a mortar and pestle and grinding it down so we could separate out the hair because what many people don't realize is there's hair, mm-hmm. there's nitrates, which is the white part, and then there, the actual dust is the is, is the is the closest thing to actual feces, i.e., that's part of the digestive system of the the snake, and that's the undigested part of the mouse. And when we did that, less than five percent of any snake poo is actual poop. Ninety plus percent of it is freaking hair. Like that's all it is. Wow. Um, and so these animals are so remarkably efficient at digesting down every little itty bitty bit that when you finally get to the point where there's more mouse tissue than hair, the snake now has more available food to utilize for growth. And that helps right. explain why when you hit that magic prey item, they got more food per prey item. Uh, and, right. and, and that's why they suddenly take off. But yeah, no. But snake turds are far more interesting than anybody thinks. I, I think I know what Lucas is doing. Yeah. Well, no, Lucas isn't doing that, but but he, he very well well he uh, could be. He doesn't know what's coming. Yeah. yeah. Poor boy. Love you, Lucas. Yes. Uh, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm learning a lot tonight. And again, it just goes back to this idea that snakes are so much more they're so fascinating <laughs> yes. and they're so underrated as an animal. Just the, yeah. the it's like they're magic, you know, I mean, yeah. they can uh-huh. like turn their digestive system on and off if they want to. And it's, it's, great. Just, it's, it's crazy. Wow. So yeah. here's a question. I get this a lot. My snake just poop green. Uh, oh, and you probably yeah. got it a million times. What's <laughs> what's going on? Give us the sign. Slow down. Uh, I believe that that is just extra bile that's coming okay. up. So basically the digestive system's working a little harder than it okay. should. Now, okay. if it's persistently doing that, that could be indicative of there's some kind of uh, gastrointestinal issue at play. Right. Um, another th- reason why they can do that is if they're um, chronically dehydrated. So if you basically give them water, because one thing I've realized over the past couple of years, keeping the snakes that I keep is that, uh, you know, we make the assumption when we, you know, you feel, you fill the water bowl, it's happy. It's going to drink. I've learned that snakes are freaking snobs when it comes to water. Like gotta be I've watched my yeah. animals <laughs> slither up to their bowl, look at it and be like, Oh, that's like five hours old. No, I'm not doing that. And then they like come over here. Uh, we have an animal or I have a, a snake at my house that will not drink unless I put a bubbler in the damn <laughs> bowl like it's the same water it's great <laughs> it, won't, it won't drink yeah you know? so uh, the assumption that just because it has water and it's drinking that that that's you know you're going a little little far on, on that one so that's yeah. that could be what's going on there okay you know that's a that's another topic of um you know that i think people don't understand how important that is for your snake um, is dehydrate and, you know, yeah. hydration oh, yeah. just in general, you know, I mean, a lot of people focus on this idea of humidity, mm-hmm. right. And, and like, I've sort of changed my mindset on that a little bit because being in the environment, I sort of said, 
you know, to me, it's sort of like this idea that, you know, maybe we're getting respiratory infections in the, in the wintertime, because especially here for us in the Northeast of, uh, of the U S it's cold winters. You got dry heat going on. Mm-hmm. It's so dry. It's drying out. I mean, it dries me out. Right. So I can imagine that it must have sort of the same effect, which maybe leads to respiratory infections and it's, yeah. that humidity may help that out. And uh, do they, Okay. It absolutely leads to to um, dehydration. Like it, I hate being in the mid Atlantic with winter and having these animals. Like the past two weeks with the uh, subarctic BS that showed up and was just like, yeah, I'm not going to leave. I'm just going to be here. I'm I'm good now. Yeah. Yeah. My collection just, I feel like it's in shambles because of the the complete drying out of everything. Um, Right. And one thing that that you know people don't um don't really understand on this issue which kind of drives me crazy there's a you've had him on the show he's one of my uh favorite people in herpetoculture ryan dumas put out a little a blog post um talking about uh, radiant heat panels yeah. and how he's going getting rid of the radiant heat panels and he's going back to lights because he learned a lot about, he actually put this in the Carpet Python group on Facebook, and then a like small war ensued. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> that's about yeah, right. But, but you know, but he, he said that he he read, you know, he he talked to some of the light people over in Europe, and and yeah. I, I've talked to those exact same people, and he's getting rid of those, and he's going back to lights because what radiant heat panels do is they emit, and and, and this is not an opinion, this is this thing we call right. fact. <laughs> they emit a wavelength of light that's just basically going to zap every ounce of humidity yeah. in there. It's a very, very, very dry heat. And it's a dry heat in that it, it it's um, at the, the wavelength of heat where any moisture is going to be um, eliminated. And that's why when you have those radiant heat panels in your, your vivs, anybody that has them knows what I'm talking about. You miss yeah. the, the, substrate you come back three hours later and it's it's dry, dry and yeah. it, i have them at my house and i i cannot keep the the moisture in the in the the substrate so right. you know by if you have those in effect you could in theory be continuing the winter dryness if you will into the summer and, and so on and so forth so you know i did the exact same thing because i have no humidity in wintertime uh, in the summertime, we have natural humidity that which invades sure. the enclosure, and, and you know that's just ambient humidity is what it really is. That's that's keeping it going. But right. same deal, like you're permanently semi dehydrating your snake um, with that radiant heat panel potentially. But if you live, if you've got radiant heat panels in Florida, you don't have that problem. So right. you kind of have yeah. to know where you're at and and have an idea of that that background. But that's part of that chronic dehydration thing as well. So. But no, that's something I don't think that we pay enough attention to is, you know, it, you just assume there's water in there. It's going to drink. Not necessarily the case. Yeah, I think uh, for me, I had those with the diamond pythons that are right behind me. And uh, slowly I switched over to bulbs because, you know, of that reason. And that just seemed to me, again, natural history, right? What mm-hmm. is diamond pythons adapted to do? They're adapted to bask in the yes. sun, you know, um, it would only makes sense that that would be important you know? yes i mean absolutely 100 you know. and it's it's amazing I, I say this all the time and i'm sure you heard me say it so many times but like it's amazing how they know when that light's going to come on yeah 
when that light is getting cut off and they seem to, you know, go and perch right before it will get shut off for the night because they know, you know, and then they go into their hide or they honker down wherever, uh, tight coils so that they retain mm-hmm. that heat. Um, and then they'll come out in the morning right before it comes on and there they yeah. are basking up in the perch right underneath the thing. And they don't stay awesome. under there long, you know, it's no. well, that's what an ectotherm, a cold blooded animal has to do. I mean, they they are right. intimately tied to the sun or whatever their heat source may be. Um, and, and if they don't get that pattern down, it, it's just going to throw everything out of whack. Uh, here at West Liberty, we have, um, nest cameras. So basically cameras we can set up and, and watch from our, our smartphones to make sure everything's okay. Mm-hmm. And I put one on my, um, false water Cobra here in the office, the, the, the big gravid female last year. Nice. And she was, it was the most interesting thing ever because, I don't know how she knew, but 10 minutes before the lights came on in the morning, it's been pitch dark in here for hours on end. You'd see her. She'd come out of the hide box in the darkness, kind of derpy because she can't like see what the hell's going on, which was kind of fun to watch. And she would just get to the far end of the enclosure uh, because that's where the UVB light was going to come on and the basking light was going to come on. And what was really interesting, I, I talk about this, I think, in the paper is that she actually was going to the UVB, and I still to this day have no idea why. Uh, but she was bat- she'd get under the UVB light first, then she'd go to the heat lamp. But she was actually following the UVB light yeah. around the Viv, which was really really nutty. That's um, wild. Yeah. I-, I moved the lights around like whack a mole to see, <laughs> like is is she just going to that end of the enclosure, or is she actually seeking out that particular light? And right. it was always the UVB. Uh, but and then at the end of the day. Uh, same thing you, you were talking about, Eric, she would go and she knew, all right, the lights are going to go out and then immediately go and do a tight coil underneath the heat lamp. But she's right. only, do- she only does that when she's gravid. She does not do that when, when she's not gravid. Okay. So that's been a really interesting observation. So huh. how, how important is it for snakes to sort of have like, so my thought is this, and I'm, uh, maybe you can put me on the right track right every day we have this big fireball in the sky and then it turns off (laughs) so i mean yeah my my thinking is is that you know everything is on nature is about cycles and you know that constant overturn of change of things so i sort of have this idea that you know at night i turn all the heat off yeah i turn all you know everything cycles off you know and as long as they're able to get that heat back up in the morning um to me i don't see why it would cause a problem and i don't know if it's beneficial i don't know if it's just me feeling better about Mm -hmm. it but you know there's it it depends on where they are right because you know 2500 species right right right. again (laughs) yeah right okay yeah um it they evolve to live in 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 nature where especially in temperate latitudes where, where we're at and there's temperate latitudes like Sydney's temperate ish. Yeah. Um, right. It gets cooler at night. So there are hormones in, in, in animals where they, and enzymes in animals that activate at different temperatures. So basically, if you're permanently, you know, you've got that incandescent heater over top of them and you never ever let them go down, mm-hmm. some of those enzymes, hormones may never actually get the chance to activate, right. um, which is going to I- impact their overall health. In the tropics, it's a little different. Uh, you you get a temperature swing between day and night. I'm not saying that, but it's it, it it's nowhere near as drastic as what you see 
in temperate latitudes. So they may be able to buffer that a little bit differently. But the other thing is that what we don't realize is snakes have a lot of receptors in their eyeballs, in their retina. And when it goes dark, even though they can't close their eyes, they know dark. And that's also important for a lot of metabolic functions. The first, my, my first attempt at grad school, which lasted all of a semester, and then I came screaming back to West Virginia and went to Marshall because I wanted to do field-based herpetology, not lab-based herpetology. But what I was actually going to study was the impact of light on the circadian rhythm of, uh, of snakes. And for that experiment, what we were going to do is we were going to take a group of, of snakes and basically keep the lights on all the time, keep one in permanent darkness, and then give one a 12-hour dark sure. cycle and look at hormone levels. And at the time, I'd read, read the few papers that had been done, and it did show that there were certain hormones and, and, and uh, per, important body functions that did seem to be related to a light-dark cycle. And so if you deny them that, you, they're not going to function at their prime. So I, I do think that it's important to kill the lights and then study the natural history of your animal, right. figure out what happens with the temperature and just mimic it and you're going to be fine. Right. Yeah. Sense. Lights, I, th- I think that's, you know, when I first got into reptiles, lights was a big thing, you know, like a light cycle was a big thing. And yeah. it seemed like, I guess through like the 2000s, it seemed like people just sort of, nah, who cares, you know, maybe yeah. because they were in tubs that were, you know, opaque. So they kind of justified it. You have to justify what you're doing to the animal. Right. Of it doesn't matter. You don't try to figure it yeah. out and then, you know, ju- you yeah. justify the mistakes you're making. Yeah, of course. By, yeah, oh, it makes well, yourself you know. feel better. <laughs> right. Yeah. The tiger um, wants to be on the ball. It was like, yeah, I got it. And it's, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I I I swear that makes a difference for my breeding. I swear that it make I I just I, I don't know. I and it, it could does. just be in my head, but you no, know. It, it's not in your head. It, it does because the other thing that many people don't realize is, um, you know, we have climate change happening in certain parts of the world. Yet animals are still breeding, and the spring is way warmer than it used to be. Winter's way cooler than it used to be. So, like, temperature is not the trigger for a lot of these physiological hormonal pathways. What is the trigger is light level. So right right now we are getting more and more and more light as we head towards March 21st, which is the spring equinox, which is when we're going to get to 12 and 12. And then we head towards the summer equinox where we're going to have the most light we're going to have at our latitude. And that is absolutely critical to reproduction for all kinds of things. Right. like, plants that's what tells them when to germinate and and, and it's it, there's been studies done with snakes that show that that light level is important the 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 some of the tougher colubrids to breed when you actually read the breeding reports and you see what they were doing you'll see like a 12 12 12 light cycle was used and it's a snake that came out of you know, temperate china well there's really only one day sorry there's two days of the year well, the light level is 12, 12. That right. is an insanely confused animal. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. so you, you have to keep that in consideration. But if you're down on the equator, uh, having a 12, 12 light cycle is totally okay because right. that's basically what they have all the damn time. Right. So I, I think that I don't think we, we, all right, let me, let me back that phrase up. The snake people, I just don't think we want to accept the importance of flipping light. <laughs> 
Yeah. I'm, I'm not picking a fight here. Oh, God. It's important. Yes. <laughs> so no, I'll I, just say that. I, well, I am I'm actually installing like bot lights to install yes. in my cages. Like I have mm-hmm. them yeah. now. Yeah. And I'm going to do that and I'm gonna have a timer on it. And I've been thinking about do I get a, a like a little timer, you push a little thing, or would it be beneficial to spend the money and get a timer that I can set for like summer light and yes. winter light and uh-huh. Okay. I know exactly. Which I, I just bought the Govi lights that I can yeah. use my cell phone and basically yeah. mimic. And, and yeah, I'm totally going down. Uh, I, I've gone down a massive rabbit hole in the past year <laughs> oh, and a good. half. Like, yeah. <laughs> I just I choose not to talk about it around too many people because if you want to start a freaking war faster than anything, talk about UVB in in, in snake enclosures. <laughs> but I'm on I'm on Team UVB because they kind of evolved. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, they like- need it. I. I if they evolved in a vacuum and it wasn't part of their evolution, I'd be fine with out talking about it. And I've heard the arguments a million times, you know, we've bred snakes forever without UVB. And that's true. I'm not denying that. Yes. That's me. We also have snakes that only live to be eight to 10 years old. So, you know, D3 synthesis, calcium uptake, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I never understood that argument. Like when I talk to people about that, it's like, to me, it's like you're trying to make something as healthy as it can be in this captive environment. So like, yeah, I mean, I could survive the rest of my life eating hamburgers and French fries. Be, be a short that, life. Mean I mean, I mean it wouldn't be, yeah. Of, you know, I might live yeah. like a, you know, 10 more years or something and then it's going to be lights out. But it's, like, it's uh, a justification know. thing again. It's the, it's it, the, I, I don't want to spend the money to add UVB light bulbs to every single one of my tubs. Cause then I can't keep I think them in my that, rack. Though. And if I, I can't think keep it's more them in my that. rack, oh, go ahead. I, I think I think this is where I sort of I think that we've had this idea that you have to you have you know the amount of species that you have is important rather you know rather than saying okay well I'm gonna take this species and I'm gonna I'm gonna deck it out the way it should be now I I can't fit five of them in this space where I can only fit one. Right. Well, right. or it's the thing of that how do we judge that a snake is happy? It eats yep. It shits yep. and it breeds. Yes. And you get right. a snake will do that, even if it's like I've had like uh, what is it glitch with like his fucked up <laughs> eye and he can't see and he'll still go after a female. Like it, of course he will. Like right. it doesn't mean that it's yeah. it's the healthiest it could possibly be. I've had the fattest slug of carpet python males somehow find a female and produce eggs. Like it is. You know, it's weird with all, you know, just talking about light, right? Like here's yeah. a, an observation from the difference between North America and Australia, right? So in Australia, it gets dark very early. So like you're talking like eight o'clock. Dark. It's like yeah. it's like dark, dark. you know, <laughs> and like the animals are active at this window from like eight p.m. to like 11 p.m. And then, you know, I'm not saying that you're not going to find any reptiles yeah. after 11. It's not 11 o'clock, clock out. Let's go home. <laughs> Time to go. Yeah. It's not like that. But like, as opposed to, I mean, no, when you were there, when we were I, herping I, I in was. West Texas, we were herping till what, three o'clock in the morning? And we're, you know, whenever Justin would let us go home, that's when we got to go back to. <laughs> yeah. Whenever Justin was like, so, and now we're done. All right. Even, <laughs> even that and and the way that the the temperature felt at that at those times and 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 those little little details that I'm sure have to make a difference. Oh, yeah. Um, you know. 
Well, the, well, the thing about UVB is that we don't know anything about it yet. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like the, the in the snake community, people are like, let's try what the dart frog people are doing. Let's bring the UVB over. And everybody was like, we haven't used it ever, so we don't need it. I'm like, well, how do you know that? Because you just got done saying we haven't because used it ever. We've got babies and we don't yeah. need anything else. And as a scientist, I look at uh, that and I'm like, well, shouldn't we test it? Shouldn't we see? Can um, we try? The thing is, no. Are you, uh, uh, you know, uh, a ring python on the island of Bismarck that's hanging out in the um, duff layer on the rainforest floor probably doesn't need the same amount of UVB as an olive python or a Bradley that's out in Alice Springs where it's totally exposed. So it's yeah. not that necessarily all snakes need it. All I'm simply saying is we haven't done the science to figure out where, like, if it needs done, <laughs> at what level do, do they need it? How often do they need it? Sure. It's, it's been a total write-off before we even got to the beginning. Right. So that's one of the things that the kids in my lab, um, undergrads and grad students, I've uh, I've just decided, like, we're just going to tackle this. We're going to totally hammer at the UVB thing and see. Because behaviorally, I can say this. I can't say anything about physiological need. That's very different than behavior. Sure. But we have definitely done experiments where we have set up UVB lights. You know, none of this is published. They've been small experiments. They're not even publication ready. Right. But you don't have to have the biggest data set to have eye. You can have eyeballs in your head and watch the Bradley <laughs> move up the enclosure to get underneath the UVB light. And it's not that they hang there. They, they go under them for like 10, 20 minutes and then they move out. But the thing right. is, when, we, when, when I did have the student do this, they would go into the UVB every day. They were just going to it for a little bit. The, uh, one thing that I've heard a lot of is that you can have too much UVB, that you can have burning and, 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 and scarring from UVB. And there's a there's an element of truth to that. But my retort to that is, what objective data set do you have that shows it's too much? Because we don't even know how much they need. Yeah, so if right. you don't know how much they need or if they need it, how do you know it's too much? How much is that's, too much? Can they know, get away from it? Yeah, if they can't yeah. get away from it, I guarantee you, you'll eventually hit the too much in the zone. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I'm not saying that they can't have too much. They very well could have too much. I just right. honestly feel like with snakes, we're so early on in this game, we can't really make a claim about it. Um, right. And and that's that's the only thing. So yeah. we might do the science and be like, yeah, UVB is totally nonsensical. Don't use it. But right. I, I don't feel like we're at a point to make a call. That's all. Is it possible that it could, I know this is maybe this is uh, that, that it helps with stress. Is yes. that, is that possible? So it's totally you know. possible. It could, it could totally help with the metabolism of corticosterone levels. It could just be a welfare thing. I mean, right. it could be that snakes evolved to seek out sunlight. And when they're in sunlight, they have to have something that tells them stay here. It's good. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that could literally be, a hormone cascade we don't know anything about that exists sure. uh, that makes them, you know, settle down. Well, Bradley are, are the snakes that we did the UVB study with. And one thing that was really cool about them, and we're going to try to imitate this, you know, I'm talking about a sample size of three snakes. Right. But what was really interesting is we noticed that they were totally changing color. Um, when, when they would start really? before the UVB light, they would be really dark. And right. then they would go up to the UVB light. And initially getting underneath the UVB light, they were darker, but after 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and they left, they were lighter. And we took 
pictures of the snakes we neutralized for light with a slr and then we just simply used a chromatograph that you can use on any picture and and you know you put your cursor on different parts of the snakes and the chromatograph was different and was the same snake so uh something's going on there is what i'm saying right um, i'm not saying you have to have uvb if you don't you're going to hell right it's not what i'm saying Right. I'm simply saying <laughs> it's causing some kind of response, and I would like to know what that response is. And I, I don't think we know anything about that. Right. That's nuts. That's I guess that's why. I mean, every wild Bradley you see looks like a hypo, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Every because it's single just picture, dripping in sunlight. Look, it, yeah, you're like, yeah, wow, right. that's amazing. You know? mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I, and it, it makes sense to change your color uh, yeah. because your color dictates how much heat you're going to retain. Sure. And it, it could be that if they're getting full, I mean, this is just a hypothesis. This could right. be total garbage. No, it's gospel. It, Got it. Yeah. <laughs> it could be that when they're getting that full load of UVB, there's a, you know, there could be a physiological response that makes them change their color to a more light state because they've evolved this mechanism that lets them know I'm going to fry to death. I'm exposed in the sun. So I need to come up with a mechanism to dump heat. And the way you do that, if you're cold blooded is you could, do this very subtle color change. Right. Um, but from the biology natural history perspective, that was just absolutely fascinating to me. It was really, really cool. And that's the other thing, like just using UVB as an example, if you're just are willing to change the way you do things, you might make an observation that makes you remember why you love the snakes so much because they're doing these really cool behaviors. They're not just these animals that, you know, eat crap breed. There's actually things Something. in there that make them tick and yeah. and that's what i like as a keeper is is kind of elucidating those behavioral responses and, and watching that go down yeah i think it takes me back to when i was a kid and like you know when you're looking at your 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 snake there's those things that you see it do and you catch it doing and you're like oh my god you're like yeah. amazed like mm -hmm. you know and yeah. I, I i think that's why we focused on feeding so much because it's so easy to mm -hmm. you like we right. can make it happen you know but um you know, I don't know. You see it perched somewhere. You see yeah. it somewhere in a different part of the cage, or you know, it's you know, like... it's something that we've become totally desensitized to. Like, yes. you ever brought somebody to your snake room and like one of your pythons lets out like a yawn or whatever, and you see like <laughs> oh, it yeah. like opens his mouth. <laughs> Every person who has never been around a snake is like, oh my god! I'm like, I, yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> like, it's just like, oh. yeah. What has he been doing all day? It's but that's the thing. It's like we we desensitize what you're saying. It brings you back into it and why yeah. you loved it so much i mean i added stupid styrofoam rocks to my rough scale cage <laughs> and i keep trying to get pictures of them what they're on the rocks but mm -hmm. i rip open the cage so quickly they're like eh. and they like so it's like adding something small and stupid as like a yeah. rock got me totally enamored with them again so oh, no, yeah. i'm right there with you so yeah. i keep everybody be ready neurodia <laughs> nice water snakes yes and i get so much crap from They're assholes <laughs> one of the kids here he's like why the hell do you keep those i'm like well and there's people that you know they're the poster child for being derpy and everything else like that but i keep those in my naturalistic setups and what's what's crazy is like they do everything a snake's supposed to do if you will in a day like they find cover well, actually, they're nocturnal as hell. So the first hour or two, they're zipping all over the, the enclosure when the lights go out. But when they run out of energy, they go to their hides. But in the morning, you know, the lights come on. I got basking lights, and then I just have LEDs to give them, you know, light, if you will. Right. 
but they go up, they do the classic tight coil for heat. And then as they get um, too hot, they start to straighten out to let the heat off. And then when they get warm enough, they start to hunt and then their temperature drops. They go back and coil. Like it's literally nature in a box. Like that is the coolest thing yeah. ever to me. Um, and, and the fact that they're just doing stuff the way that I keep them is great. If I just, if I didn't give them all that, you know, extra, that little extra stimuli, Right. which I'm talking about. It's a bus bin. It's some uh, styrofoam that I covered in quick crete to turn into yep. rocks and rocks. some sticks yep. with, with a heat lamp and an LED light. And just that, you know, there I, I've got high end snakes that people would be like, Ooh, all over. And the damn Nerodia are absolutely tied as my favorite snakes in my personal collection. Like I'm I never not having them because they do everything a snake's supposed to do. They're just interesting. Yeah. And, and that's why I keep them. And they, they let me be a 12 year old every time I look in there. And, you know, that's why I became a biologist is, uh, you know, it was a hellish amount of school, <laughs> but now, you know, I get paid to do exactly what I was doing when I was 12. Just I'm smarter. That's it. <laughs> like, and I have help. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. They're, that's they're, they're, that's a, that's a cool, uh, I like those snakes a lot. Yeah. Um, no, they're fantastic. Yeah. More people need to give them a try. Uh, now, granted, they, you know, I, I, the Florida banded waters, um, they get past the bitey, going to hang off your face aspect of Where's Rodea. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> uh, That's right up your alley. You know, I, would, I, you know, I want the, it will hang off my face. Yeah. Well, those are my favorite animals are the animals that want to hang off. Like, there I, we I go, absolutely done. love them. That's why Nerodi is my favorite genus of North American snakes. So. A snake that acts like a snake, not one yes. that just... Yeah, uh-huh. it just right. stares at me blankly with its dead eyes, its ball python-like body. I mean, um... <laughs> oh, Owen. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking real quick, back to the Bradley thing, real quick, and um, when we're talking about a, a change in color and all, I, I have, I've heard from many people, and Owen, you can probably, I, I, yeah, uh, whatever you're about us. to say, yeah. When they, when the female is gravid, mm-hmm. she turns. They turn like the darkest. It's. It's weird, Ugliest. dude. And the first dude, the first shed after she lays eggs, you're like, like oh a my new God. snake. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're gorgeous. It's like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all over but, again. Yeah. I would just imagine that it's you know that they're doing that to get that heat for that's you know. Totally yeah. DIY. Oh, yeah. That's a very value. I would put money on that hypothesis. So yeah. yeah. Damn. Yeah. Because they're probably not like you know. I, I doubt highly in Alice Springs there's Bradley that are basking out on the middle of the rock ledge with their clutch of eggs in the sun. No, they're probably down in a crevice, they're down in a log, they're in a hollow right. tree. They might get like one you know, beam of sunlight that hits their bodies, or they might not get any. So just anything that could retain heat for them is going to be good. Right. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. Okay. Um. Oh, and you want? Uh, I know you're dying for some false water I mean, cobra. This, talk. this also goes back to my theory <laughs> yeah. of that the darker, if it's a dark snake, it's from the most hellish non-snake-like place. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like it's bad there. So there's a there's a lot of truth to that. Most of the snakes that are above the art, you know, in in northern latitudes, um, are black, and then when you go south, they're they're black, and that's totally why it's it's yeah. a heat retention mechanism. There's actually papers that have been written on that. I so think of those go. timbers, Owen, that we saw. Yeah. Remember that how black they were? Timber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was sitting you know? on top of – we saw the one timber. The other well, times you oh, weren't with right. me. Those you don't count. Me, yes. They never <laughs> happened. Those <laughs> are 
That that was a dream for you. That, um, that, that, so, those two females we found. I mean, stop, they were they were black. It. Oh yeah, they were yeah. Well, thing, you know. Well, and you got to think about it that way. She was the only one we saw that day. It was cold as shit, and she was out because she needed the freaking heat because she uh-huh. was gravid yeah. as all kinds of hell. So yeah, she did look. She did look. She, she was bumpy. about to pop. Yeah. Yep. So but. yeah, no. False water cobra. Yes. Um, which uh, I, I will say I backdoored this species because I got into the hog nose and that kind of led me to, I can handle a false water cobra. They are so different. <laughs> like, yes, they are. <laughs> I yeah. made horrible mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> no. What, what brought you to work with the false water cobra? Um, well, so I... In 2016, I was told that I was going to be in charge of this zoo science major, uh, and that was my kind of ticket to get back into – well, actually, it was 2014. Um, That was my ticket to get back into herpetoculture, and, you know, everybody has their snake, if you will. And, uh, Owen, after listening to you for the past, I don't know how many years, I've determined that we are the same human when it comes to choosing (laughs) – Excellent. So, like, if you could look at a snake and, and it's just sitting there all cute and meek, I look at that one and I'm like, pathetic. And then I turn to the right and I look at this, like, beast that's just moving and defecating and it's attached to my throat. And I'm like, yes. this is the most perfect thing on earth. So, wasn't that I was seeking that out per se, but that was part of it. And that's um, the problem. you have that potential. <laughs> if that's yeah. your goal, it will eventually lead. Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna end up there. It's, so, just, it's like a maze. It's, it's only gonna end one place. <laughs> yeah, it always ends up there. So, I I I, I like Nerodia. They're they're you know scientifically, I like Nerodia. I didn't necessarily like them for keeping until a couple years ago. And I like you know I'm a, a, a freshwater biologist, so I like semi-aquatic snakes, things that right. are being swamps and things and so i was looking at animals for our collection here at the school and at the time what i knew about false water cobras was that these were um, rear fang snakes they have venom that's equal to a timber rattlesnake Um, if you if they bite you something very bad is going to happen and they get enormous that was like that was what i knew yeah so well check 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 (laughs) so uh but i didn't like the venomous thing the venomous thing really worried me a bit um and so i was you know sitting on the couch and i'm just trying to find the snake that i'm going to work with and uh i i saw that there was a, a facebook group of all things for false water cobras and i thought okay you know, I'll join that and just see what people's experience was. And I was, I was shocked to hell and back when I joined this group because the I, it, it's etched in my brain. You know, I joined the false water cobra group, and the first image I see is this like sixteen year old girl with an eight foot falsy just wrapped all around her head. And I was like, what Timber the hell Am I seeing it? Like Timber rattlesnake? What is happening here? So that intrigued me a little bit. <laughs> Um, so I get a little bit more recoil and horror. Yes. It's just like, okay, <laughs> yeah, tell me more. So I did some more reading and I stumbled onto a journal article and it was a, it was a bite history. Yeah. And before I go any further, um, I, I am not saying that false water cobras are not venomous. I do not want people to misinterpret what I am saying. What I'm saying is I read the bite history and basically what it equated to is this guy got bit. Um, he was actually sexing a baby false water cobra and his hands swelled up. He had a really nasty histamine reaction, but 
it in it 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 started saying like the whole idea that their venom's equal to timber rattlesnake is is both true and false. And I was like, well, how the hell can it be both? So uh-huh. I just ended up going down this rabbit hole and then came to find out that the true part is if you are to if you pull out the Duvernoy secretion from a falsy and you pull out the venom from a timber rattlesnake and you have equal volume. So you have one gram of Duvernoy secretion. That's a lot, by the way, yeah. from a false water cobra and one gram of, of um, timber rattlesnake venom. They're going to be – and then you look at the chemical constituent. There's this thing in there called um, uh, metalloprotease, which is a particular type of enzyme. They're, the, they're basically the same. In fact, it's a little bit more elevated in the uh, false water cobra. That's where the whole idea that they have the same venom as a timber comes from. Okay. But a timber rattlesnake is a viper. So when it bites you, it puts hypodermic needles into your muscle – and 100% of that venom yield is deposited into you potentially. Whereas when a um, uh, falsy bites you, it bites you. It has a very inefficient venom delivery system. It's got to you know, chew a bit, and you're not going to get anywhere near the same amount of venom in you. So you know this idea that it's the same, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to voluntarily get bit 100 times out of 100 by a false water cobra before I ever get tagged <laughs> by a timber rattlesnake. I'm a, wait, so, we, wait, we have we have we have grad students. Yes. Let's experiment. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you all gonna draw uh, straws. Somebody gets the timber. All right. Like it's yeah. Yeah. So with doing that, I thought, okay, you know, it's worth it. And I worked in a venom lab at that university, so I'd worked with venomous snakes. So I ended up working with the the you know, I thought, okay, I'll 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 get one. And when I there was a guy just up the road in Pittsburgh. Uh, Wheeling's only an hour from Pittsburgh. So I found it um, on Fauna. And, and this was not a university purchase. This was a Zach Loafman purchase. <laughs> and so, you know, I go up to the tattoo shop. That's where I bought the first one. It's like perfect. <laughs> yes. Um, so far, so good. <laughs> I brought it home. And I, you know, I have all my gloves and I advocate gloves. You need to wear gloves if you're working with these things. You're not being a pansy, you're being smart. And I got on my hoodie. And I go to mess with it, and it like is just literally trying to ingest my thumb. And I thought, "You're beautiful. This is like <laughs> perfect." And I put it down and started feeding it. And then what ended up happening is she that particular animal was a little bit feisty, but she very quickly like calmed down. Mm-hmm. And then what I ended up seeing in the snake was a level of awareness and intelligence that was well beyond any other snake that I had ever worked with. Um, and that is what intrigued me, that part, not the venomous part, not the I'm trying to eat Zach's thumb part. Mm-hmm. It was the fact that, like, I walk into my snake room and the, the false water cobra kind of pops its head up and slithers out to the front. And it's actually fall like, uh, you know, I thought, am I anthropomorphizing? Is this thing following me around the room? Mm-hmm. And then sure enough, it was because it very quickly learned Zach equals food. Um, not that it wants to eat Zach, per se, but that, you know, this Thing comes in the room and, and rodents ooh. follow. Right. And I thought, okay, I can do something with that. And so, uh, you know, I started raising them. And then with falsies, it's this is not a snake that you just have. Um, you have to feed them a lot. You have to interact with them a lot. They freaking crap more than anything alive. And when they crap, it's like it's it's toddler sized. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, wow. 
some people would be, you know, turn, turned off by that. Not that I like that aspect of them, but it's a snake that you keep, if that makes sense. Like, you are engaged with these animals. If you're not on it with them, you're, they're not going to do well. Uh, right. And so you kind of put all that together uh, and add to the fact that they're one of the largest colubrids or colubroids that lives in South America. So you have this giant beast. You know, that was pretty cool, too. I mean, my adult breeders now, the females are eight foot and they are actually, you know, they are now officially bigger than our six foot Woma. So, you know, these are huge um, snakes. But that also means yeah, this is not an animal that I condone in any way to put in a rack, not anti-rack. But given the fact that it's an eight foot animal, crapping machine yeah. that needs to eat once a week as an adult. Um, you know, you, you, they're going to be in an ammonia haze pretty much all the time if they're in Iraq. So I, I like that. And then it, they were easy to breed. Um, I've come up with a protocol here at the university where, you know, graduate students can work with the false water cobras. We do it safely for the people listening. Um, and we've now done all kinds of experiments with them. So I feel like I know more about this animal now at like a deeper fundamental level than ever. And then I wrote the paper and did the deep dive with all the, the literature. And it's just, it's just perfect. Like they're, they're, I, I, I've heard people get asked on podcasts, like if you could keep one snake, would you? And a lot of times people be like, no, I have to have many. If somebody came to me and said, you can only species. keep one, yeah. you know, it would be false water cobras, and then I would begrudgingly give up my water snakes. <laughs> that, that would be it. So no, th that that's it. That was a long answer, but yeah, I just love them to death. That's so, fantastic, wow. though. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait for uh, mine to get some bigger. I they, they're starting to learn because I kept putting the rodents <clears throat> on the same cork bark tubes, mm -hmm. and I put, I just just dropping food and the mail came flying out like yes. he was on fire and i'm like okay right yeah. not doing that again so yeah that, so. that feeding response gets them into trouble because that's what i mean I, i'll fully admit when they're around food and they're on there are very few snakes that are um Jeez. as intimidating <laughs> as, as a you know falsy they also are really interesting in their growth because mm. they go through behavioral phases uh which a lot of snakes don't do. So like when they come out of the egg, they, they, they're just, they hate everything. They don't like anything. The first month they're alive, they want to bite everything and anything. It's a threat. Um, and I think that's because where they live in South America, there are so many predators around mm -hmm. the, the, the habitat they come from is just predator saturated. So they kind of have to be that. Then they get to like the, the 10 to 18 inch size right around a year and that's where every false water cobra that I work with is different. Like we have some that are just really laid back and chill so long as food's not present. We have others that do the hooding, you know, uh, they tail whip you. That's yep. something that lots of snakes don't do. The first time I got tail whipped by wow. one of the water cobras, I was like, what the hell is, are you a monitor? Like what is going <laughs> on? Wow. I taught you this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. They'll, um, uh, but they kind of go through this almost like a teenager phase where they just, you know, they, they don't like you. And then they reach adulthood and most of them, not all of them, but most of them just become super chill once they reach sexual maturity. But that getting them to sexual maturity, it's a journey. Mm. It's a fun, <laughs> fun journey. Yeah. Yeah. Fun, aggressive, induced, potentially, but not always. Journey. Right. Sometimes, yes. maybe. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But that feeding response is something to 
it to is, be hooked. It is interesting. I was, I'm the moron. I'm looking at them right now. My two largest are actually at head level. Um, mm. And I'll get distracted and I'll be like holding the rat on the tongs. And the falsy, it's like a damn dog. I mean, it's like on point looking at the rat. And I don't do this often, but I've done it a couple times. And I do it once and then I don't do it for another month. Mm. And I'll like open the glass while I'm not looking. And it, it happened last week. And as I'm opening, I thought, this is bad. Like before <laughs> I turned my Damn head, <laughs> and as I turned, the, the eight-foot snake is darting past my face, and I like held up the rat and it grabbed it and it went down on the ground. Well, I didn't know that there were students in the doorway. My students that know me would be like, Yeah, it's just a Tuesday. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> these new ones were just like what the hell is that? <laughs> I didn't even know there were snakes in the box, and, and out came this eight foot, you know, ten pound beast. So, yeah. Wow. Oh, that's no. great. That's, that's mm -hmm. a fantastic introduction there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how well? How big have yours gotten? No one. Uh, I mean, I saw them when they first came, but let's... I haven't. I haven't. I haven't ripped them out of their because I have a, a couple cork tubes and hides in there, and yeah. a very much of the if I catch you out, that's awesome. Yeah, but I don't right. be like how big did you get? Like yeah. as I rip open the tube, oh, I gotcha. So okay. uh, they have improved in size because I've seen they both of them have shed at least twice since they've been here, uh, yep. and they're they're taking down um, uh, small mice right now yep. because I haven't. I don't have a. I don't have the plethora of fun food that I will get them into later when the mm -hmm. Kribos are fully awake and the Blue Beauties will be like, let's see if they'll take a fish. Like, it's yeah. that kind of stuff. So, um, but I I do love them both and they're yes. just so cool. And yeah. uh, the thing is, I see the male a lot more and he's the high black one. And then I have a female that's the high yellow. Mm -hmm. When I catch her out, it's something special because she does not like me. Yeah, <laughs> so, no. she, well, she, you know, I, I will say to the listeners, they're not for everybody. Like, don't don't listen yeah. to this and be like, oh, yeah, you should get because this is a snake that is going to make your snake room smell like ass. Like, yep. it, it is not a, a uh. snake that, you know, we oftentimes talk, talk about the people that, you know, <laughs> the personality of the keeper is very similar to the animals that they keep. And I'm, uh, I, I like, I got an attention span that's kind of short and i just like yeah. to be moving all the time and, and this is these snakes kind of fit that personality for me because you have to always be doing something with them right gotcha. you know, this is not an animal that you can you know have if you're keeping it well um off in the side you feed it once a week you only change its water once a week like you have to be on it and they get big and they need a big enclosure Age. like just today, um, I moved in there, the adults that I keep at my house, they got their new enclosures and I built, or I, I had made for them, um, eight foot long by two foot tall by three foot wide PVC enclosures. And, and that was for three false water cobras. I have three of those and it's for three false water cobras. And, and that's like the dimensions that people keep super dwarfs in. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> you know, uh, if you're going to do them justice, you got to give them the space. So, yeah, okay. it's, it's, it's very much in the, uh, the Kribo kind of thing yes. where they, they needed the space. So like um, the fall season, I'm like, I hope I'm in a new house before you guys <laughs> get too big. Like it's, mm -hmm. this is going to be bad. <laughs> like yeah. it's, yeah. So might be kicking out some olive pythons later, but um, oh. how, I mean, how have you kind of like, what was your first experience with breeding the false waters and doing all that stuff? I mean, yeah. like, did you kind of just dive into it or was it kind of a slow, steady kind of I deal? My first attempt was with a pair that I picked up um, that 
the the female was a little off. Mm. Um, I, I was able to purchase an adult pair, and in retrospect, I wish I would have waited for the initial breeding for the animals that I actually raised up because that's what I did last year. But okay. that initial breeding, uh, what I realized was that male false water cobras never – a good male water cobra wants to mate all the time. There's <laughs> not an off season. Um, <laughs> and if you put them with the female, uh, they will basically – once they pick up that there's a female there, they begin courting immediately. It's not a biting on the neck kind of courting, but they will totally chase and right. kind of do this body pinning thing. Uh, and they will not leave the female alone. Like he is with her. If they're in there for four days, you know, three he's and a half of those days he's with yeah. her. Um, and the story I tell people all the time about that is I had a large male and then I had the two females that are adults now, but they were subadults at the time. And in the summertime, our campus is dead to the world because we're a small liberal arts school. So I took the snakes out onto the quad and I just kind of let them slither around while I ate my lunch. I put a picnic table in the middle of the quad and then the big water cobras are doing the thing. And this was the first time I put a male out there with the females. And this male has been yanked out of an enclosure, thrown outside. There's no <laughs> idea what grass is or anything. I put the females Man, down oh my. and he hit the trail. Like he actually went over the trail of the girl, backed up, started tongue flicking and tracked her down and then immediately tried to mate with her out in the middle of the quad. So like breeding them's not difficult. Um, the, the other thing that they do is that they double clutch. Uh, oh, and that's a natural thing for dipsatted snakes. So I, I, I knew that they would double clutch. Mm -hmm. I did not know the frequency of double clutching uh, because on my initial attempt at breeding them, I only got eight eggs and I thought, you know, okay, you know, this was easy. One clutch, that's it. Last year with my females I raised, you know, these things were basically perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and both of them laid clutches. It was kind of odd. Uh, first clutch for both was 27 eggs. Jeez. And then two and a half months later, both of them dropped another clutch. And one of the females actually increased the number of eggs to 31. Um, so I ended up with basically, I can't do that math, like 58. Is that right? <laughs> Of like what, like yeah. we're like, one we're, female. So yeah. Holy. productivity of them is insane. And you know, on the forums, it's kind of or Facebook groups, you have the the, the people that kind of shame you did the double clutching. I did not put the male back with the females. Like this she is did it herself, sir. That they <laughs> do. Like, um, yeah. So uh, yeah, so you can absolutely uh, kind of flood the market, if you will, with false water cobra babies. <laughs> Um, which, you know, I in, unintentionally ended up with over a hundred of them last year, which was okay because we were doing, you know, science with them. And I, I, I moved some, uh, personally, I gave a bunch away, like literally I was, you know, Johnny Apple, false water cobra trying to you know, get these animals out. So I'm not making that mistake again, <laughs> but is that maybe part yeah. of like, I knew you said that where they're from is so predator heavy. Yeah. Oh, that's they just, what it is. It's just carpet bombing because only like four <laughs> of these are going to survive. Like yes. it is. No, I, I think that's part of it. Yeah. But, but all the dipsadids uh, yeah. do that. That that's what I've, I've learned is like Museranas will double clutch. Baron's racers will double clutch. Uh, um, huh, Tricolor hognose snakes. Holy Moses. Those things lay five clutches of eggs in a row. It's Jesus. just bam, 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 bam. So it's just part of that, that whole strategy for living down there in South America that they have. Gotta wow. stay alive. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. That's crazy. So no. So when it comes to breeding, 
uh, you got to be careful because uh, they will they will breed. Now we do have a male here currently that uh, I was trying to kind of swap out genetics to get the most genetically diverse group of snakes, and we were only going to do one breeding this year. And you know, I, I put this male. We, we got him from somebody else. He bred for that individual. I put him with the females, and he just stared at her. And that's the only time that's happened. So, you know, I'm not. I don't want to give the impression like it's going to happen, but. Compared to other ant snakes that we've bred or I've bred, these are actually really straightforward, easy. Though there's some debate as to whether or not they need a brumation period. Okay. Um, th they do, depending on where they, they have actually a very wide range in South America and Argentine populations, Paraguayan populations, which is where we think the animals from North America probably came from. Okay. Uh, they do get a winter. So I do cycle my animals. I drop them. You know, I basically keep them at what I say in the paper, uh, but I drop them down to like room temperature. Basically, I turn all the heat sources off and they sit there for about a month and a half. And I do think that that helps with my clutch sizes because I had pretty nice, big, robust clutches. And I got better clutches when I did that than when I didn't. So but, you know, that's what I do. May not be the case for everybody. Everybody else. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, so what, like, uh, how are you keeping baby to adult and what's the diet? Like, cause I know you enjoy that kind of stuff and yes. I want to know what I can throw at mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, so I start them if I can on rat pinks. Okay. I just kind of bypass the mice altogether because we've had a couple animals that turned into mousers mm. and, uh, a lot of mice. That's a royal, well, it's, it's a <laughs> royal pain in the ass cause they do eat a lot of mice. Um, but we have problems getting them to eat sometimes as babies. And and this is fun. So uh, there's a guy named Kyle Wilson, who's been my false water cobra mentor, if you will. Uh, and I, I emailed or I messaged Kyle with this last clutch because the first couple of times I bred him, I had no problems, but we were having some problems with some of the babies. And I said to him, like, do you scent with frogs? <laughs> and Kyle's like, yeah, I do. I was like, well, how do you do that? He goes, well, I go out and I get some and I put them in a blender. I was like, <laughs> okay yes so they go in a blender huh come. and he's like yeah blender i was like all right so that gets them I, nice and blended yeah. okay so i went out and i'm of course thinking about parasites and everything so i went out after it rained here and i got some green frogs um i threw them in the minus 80 freezer in our building which basically them. throws them solid for right. a week I didn't have the luxury of time because these were newborn snakes that needed to eat. And then I removed their gastrointestinal tracts. And then we bought a, you know, a little food processing, processing ninja. Uh, <laughs> and I took these frogs and I do feel the need to explain this to people listening. It is a life changing event. <laughs> when you put a green frog carcass in a ninja, because when you hit the button, to liquefy, you learn what that means because there's a frog and then it's gone. <laughs> like, like, it goes from frog <laughs> to smoothie in a nanosecond. Like, wow, it, it was you're bizarre. Looking, you're so, looking at wow. the ninja's like, damn, that yeah, was no, a great it was like, purchase. It's gone. Awesome. Like, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that took a little while to get over. What other animals can we blend yes. for science? What so these were here? animals that died. I'm not throwing a live frog, and that would be absolutely horrible. That is um, terrific. But yeah, no, the grad one of the grad students was with me when I did this, and she just stood there like, 
I can't unsee what I just saw. <laughs> Why would you want to? Yeah. Wow. So anyway, so you you take that slurry, if you will, and then you just basically throw the rat pinks into it and you let it marinate for like, I don't know, an hour. And that stuff is, you, know, you we get it 100% feeding rates. And, wow. and after that, they just pound it because in that, you know, here again, it starts. Yeah, the, okay. the, the, the food studies that have been done with them in nature show that anurins are massive part of their diet. So, and we tried using the, like, you know, the, the professional frog broths and things, right. but this was exponentially cheaper and they really freaking liked it. So we feed them the rat pinks with the frog slurry or frog, what I refer to as the frog glaze. Uh, and <laughs> yes, and then yeah. you basically you know reduce the glaze with each feeding, and then within a matter of two weeks, you're not you don't ever have to do it again. And then once you get them established on one food type, that's when I start introducing tilapia and you know quail chicks, and you basically throw the kitchen sink at them. Right. Um, it, it becomes almost like a game. What will the falsy eat? Uh, and more often than not, like one of the things I found out that they eat, which isn't the most nutritious thing, so I don't feed them that often, but my wife had bought imitation crab meat. And I was like, well, that's fish. That's so right. yeah. I grabbed one of those and I, I, I threw it in the, the enclosure and it didn't hit the ground. Like it oh, rolled across and the false water cobra is like on it. Dude, that's why, the dog chasing a bone. That's why so, I love wow. these big caliber yeah. stuff because I was playing that game this mm -hmm. summer. Will they eat it? Like, and yes. they did. You so know. that diversity in diet is is real kind of critical for them. Um, what's another interesting thing is that the same food study showed that snakes were a, were a large part of their diet in nature. So I was a little bit afraid. Like, are they going to try to you know eat each eat other? Each other. Have these yeah. things out? Uh, but we haven't seen any of that you know to date. But basically, getting them on the rats, and then frequency is important. So small meals often. So we basically feed them that rat pink or the you know two fuzzy mice or something like that twice a week uh, as they're growing because that also will will keep them from wanting to like eat your hand mm -hmm. because if you look at fingers, fingers look a lot like snakes, pinkies, frogs, yeah. pinkies, Stuff. you know whatever, and and they a lot of times they will just you know react to right. anything that is moving when they're small. Uh, when they get bigger, they, they calm down a little bit, um, but they a good false water cobra has that feeding response. Unfortunately, in my experience, about 25% of them do become kind of a pain in the ass when it comes to eating, which is something you don't hear that often about. More mm -hmm. often than not, it's males, and it's not at all uncommon for males to go off food like a lot of snakes in the fall through the winter and then into early spring, and then all of a sudden – the switch goes off. I have a couple that just started eating again last week. And the way they're they're hitting foods, you'd think, you know, that I hadn't offered food to them and I've offered food to them literally every week for the past 10 weeks. Right. But now they decided that they were going to eat. So. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. No, awesome. I, I would say that it's kind of like it, they do remind me of. Uh, some of my other Asian rat snakes and bigger colubrids, because when they're small, they're pissy, they flare. Yeah. Like, I, mm -hmm. I barely see a reaction in my Blue Beauties anymore, which is, I kind of love them for their reaction. Yes. So it's no. like, yeah, I mean, they're. That's cool why guys. I have Blue Beauties too. <laughs> yeah. More and more that uh, you mention it, I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, okay. This is apparently Very a water cool. thing that apparently uh, Eric never got. What the hell's mm -hmm. wrong with you? 
So. No, no. We have to balance each other out, Owen. You yeah. can't, we can't True. like the same things. You know You're right. I mean? You're right. And yang, I mean, you know? I think I put a Kribo in his <laughs> it hand. It seemed to like, have worked for us for the past 10 years. So far. Just a little bit. Maybe another 10 years. Um, But as far as like keeping uh, yeah. temps okay. um, so, and, and closure stuff. Enclosure stuff, I my adults, I try to keep in nothing smaller than a six by two by two PVC. Um. Always have them. Always give them water. Uh, mm-hmm. There was actually a period in time where the false water keepers, the little niche group that they are, were kind of debating: do they need water? Do they not need water? I think that they absolutely need water. Um, they will soak in water persistently yeah. if they're too hot. Okay. Uh, so, and they can get too hot. So, what I like to do with them is keep them where, like, the warm end. If you're using a, 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 a heat panel. I don't use the heat panel to maintain the high end of temperature. I use it to maintain the bottom end of temperature. So that's set to like 72, 74. And then I usually try to get some kind of basking lamp in there and then give them the opportunity to bask. And then underneath that lamp, they can usually get up to about 95-ish. But the overall ambient, if there was one, would be around 74. And then at nighttime, I like to get them no lower than 74. So I did a lot of experiment or experimenting because I kept having the animals particular at my house, they were going off food and there was like the scientist to me was like, there's a pattern and I'm going to figure it out because they would go off food and then they would, you know, eat ravenously and then they would all go off food. And what I was able to figure out was that the nighttime low was actually critically important for them Mm -hmm. feeding. If the nighttime, I could have the daytime temperatures be identical every single day. But if the nighttime low dropped below, in my house anyway, 74 degrees and stayed like 72, 70 for like five days in a row, they would immediately go off food. And then if I bumped them back up and kept them at the 74 range, after like three or four days of nights at that, that feeding response came back. Okay. Um, and just to test it, I let it drop back down to 68. Uh, and sure enough, everybody went off food. And then I let them go back up to 74 at night. And then they started eating again so temperature is important if they stop feeding just bump your temps back up okay um and then the enclosure itself i you know anybody that keeps false water cobra on um newspaper is a brave human it, being. It, it, well no they're just a wasteful idiot yeah <laughs> it, like... it, that is horrific. <laughs> so substrate matters with these snakes and so uh what i do is i use um cypress mulch mm. as the base and then i actually go to uh tractor supply and buy compressed pine pellets yeah. like you would use for rabbits because yeah. that's absorptive. Uh, and I throw, mix that in with the Cypress. And whenever they release these toddler sized dumps, um, that liquid, cause there's a lot of liquid in there mm-hmm. too. It'll go into the pellets. The pellets kind of swell up. They absorb that. And then you kind of grab the whole thing and, and pitch it out. And uh, you can, it's not bioactivity. I am not saying bioactivity. I said this on another podcast and got somebody actually took the time to message me oh, and tell God. me I was wrong. So I'm not saying that <laughs> podcast land, um, but you need something else in there to just deal with the poop. Uh, and so what I do, thanks to Kyle, is I throw about 50 super worms in each enclosure. <laughs> and when okay. they go to the bathroom, uh, especially if I'm away like on a trip and my poor wife has to deal with this, the, the superworms will kind of hit that fecal mass and start feeding on it. And it does help in at least neutralizing the smell a little mm-hmm. bit. 
um, because that's something that you absolutely had to be prepared for is um, the odor. Uh, yeah. it's, it, my office here at West Liberty kind of smells because of the poop. And once again, the students that know me, the juniors and seniors, they like walk right in. But I totally have had freshmen like hit the wall. reach the doorway <laughs> and they hit, you know, the crap stank. And it's just kind of like, whoa, what is going on in here? This place is like next level. Well, it's because these these snakes go to the bathroom all the time. So all the time. substrate's important. And then they need a hide. Um, if they can't get out of line of sight, uh, that'll make them really nervous. So I just use the commercial plastic hides but you could totally build a hide mm -hmm. uh, they'll use cork bark tubes cork flats you know anything like that <laughs> so awesome. yep awesome. so that's it okay yeah man cool. Next another thing Eric's though yep. is they grow so freaking fast <laughs> yeah when they are growing uh i, I kind of tell people like it is okay to use the dreaded 20 gallon long aquarium or a 40 gallon breeder tank because they're literally going to be in that for a month. Like, <laughs> you know, they, if you're, if their growth trajectory is correct, uh, they, it's actually a pain in the ass keeping them the first year and a half because they're, they're moving up. Yeah. So at home, I have four by twos that I, from animal plastics that I got the movable, removable dividers. Right. So right now my yearlings are in those and I just put the dividers in, but they are, you know, actually this weekend that's on the to-do list. Pull the dividers. They're going to then go to the four. I'm going to pull the dividers out on my holdbacks. Now they're going to have a four by two. And what is it? It's March. So they will then be moving to their permanent enclosures by July. And those are those new enclosures that I just bought. So oh, you can get them up to four and a half, five feet in a year. That's not uncommon. Wow. Holy. Yeah. Damn. I'm yeah. screwed boys. <laughs> like yes. it is, uh, oh, and when are you moving? <laughs> yes. I don't, uh, not fast enough. I mean, right. we're going to have like uh, you know, we have a serious talk about whether olive pythons are going to have a cage here. You know, do <laughs> oh. I need 2.2 olives or can I get by with just the pair? Yeah. So, and, and you know, some people will think, well, you're power feeding them. They're growing too fat, but, the field studies show yeah. the field studies show that there's a period in time where those yearlings are a, a year old in nature. You don't find two foot snakes. You find neonates and you find four foot snakes. There's <laughs> nothing in between. So those would be those growing, you know, animals. So that that's kind of how I was able to validate this growth because I thought, am I like supercharging these damn things like what the hell is going on here but i i think based off what's been observed in nature that it, it, it very well could be that you know that's that's normal right. so that that hurry up and wait again yes, they hurry exactly. up to get the four feet and then they're yeah. four feet for three years mm -hmm. so wow. jesus that's yeah. awesome all right crap all right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You're fun>. <laughs> <laughs> oh they're great i love them so I guess the last question I'm going to ask before we uh, jump off is, is there a particular species that you would want to find in the wild that haven't? Is there something on your, on your oh. bucket list? Man. Well, it's false water cobras. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. kind of figured it would uh, be. Yeah. 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 No, it's really okay. funny. So, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book right now. Um, it's what I wanted it to be was the complete guide to, uh, false water cobras and there are a whopping 20 people that would buy that book so i, I talked with Bob ashley yeah. and uh, we kind of you know figured out that hognose snakes are related to false water cobras i like those guys too 
So okay. the book I'm writing is the complete guide to false water cobras. Sorry, the complete. See, I want it to be that so bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the complete guide <laughs> to hognose snakes and their allies. So I was able to kind of have my cake and eat it too. So yeah, okay, oh, cool. You know, and, and in writing the book, I've read about um, the allies, if you will. So um, things that are related to hognose snakes are false water cobras, the Museranos, Trico hognose snakes, uh, Barons racers, and and things that are related to them. And all those snakes live in this one little kind of area of Paraguay and Argentina. And um, yeah, I'm going there. That's just all there is to it. Because I've now read like over a hundred journal articles on these animals. Uh, I feel like I know Paraguay, like the back of my hand. And I know I don't because I've never been there. And you guys have talked about it a million times. I know that if I go there, it's going to make me a better keeper. I want to go there to talk about it in the book. Um, it, everything is just kind of pointing towards this needs to happen. So, um, yeah. Yeah, but that's definitely it, without question. I see a false water cobra in the wild. There is a very good chance I'm going to pass out and die. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, they're 12 year old in me. Because, yes. I, I, you know, the kid, my students, when they go on trips, they oftentimes say, like, we like watching you more than the damn animals. Because when you see something, like, whoa, you know. And, and I know that, that that's going to happen. And I'm, 100%. Yeah, you guys know. I mean, there's nothing yeah, better than doing all the research, reading, and the finding it, and yeah. you keeping it, and then you freaking find it. It doesn't yeah. get better than that. So, I mean, I, no, that's it. Without I think I would turn to dust if we actually do find a rough scale python. Like, I think that is how I will leave. <laughs> yes, I will leave this yeah. plane. Like, it just yeah. So, yeah, my no, life I, is complete. Yep, done. <laughs> yeah, when, when I was doing my my master's thesis, my. And by the way, writing the book on the hognose snakes is my revenge on hognose snakes, by the way, because <laughs> my, my master's thesis was supposed to be a conservation status and distributional survey of the eastern hognose snake in West Virginia. Nice. And my advisor, Dr. Polly, you know, I, I told him, like, I want to do a snake. And he looked at me and was like, really? That's all he said. Because <laughs> he's a field guy. And I was like, yeah, because you realize doing a field study on a snake is like the most difficult thing you can do. Because you got to find like a hundred of them, and you can't. And, and and I said, well, I think let me do a hognose snake. And the twenty-two-year-old version of Zach was an idiot because there's, this is a rare snake. And I decided I'm going to do it across West Virginia of all places. And so uh, I found this guy, and he said, you know, I've got this population. They're on an abandoned strip mine. You're going to find hognose snakes all over the place. And needless to say, I went down there. I, I invested. Total number of man hours spent searching, herping, if you will, between me and all the graduate students. We put in over a thousand hours of looking, and it was August. We hadn't found a hognose snake yet, and I was I was driving past my strip mine uh, with of all people, my brother-in-law. He was a freshman at Marshall at the time, and I saw this snake crossing in the road. And you know, we all have that herping moment, but this was different. Because I literally had people that wanted to murder me for dragging them to this mine. It's like a horrific hellscape looking for snakes. We hadn't found anything. And I saw the hognose snake. And, you know, people talk about, like, doing a Yui. I had a little cavalier. And it was on two wheels. I, like, hopped out of the car. I didn't put the car in park. It's on a curvy road. And when I was running up to catch the snake, so much emotion was pent up in that, that I actually got dizzy and fell over. Like, so I had to like crawl 
to get to this hognose snake. So when I say, <laughs> when I find a water cobra, I'm going to pass out. I, I think I'm gonna, real I have data to support that claim. But oh my I didn't get to do my thesis on the hognose snake, so now I'm writing a book on them. So nice. that's, you uh, know, yeah, so yeah. that's my revenge. Is, Bastards. You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and you don't make a paycheck when you write a master's thesis, and now I might make like a hundred bucks writing this. No, enough to buy some that. food for my false water cobra. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Oh my god, that's awesome. <laughs> so uh, anyway. that's very very cool, uh, man. I we're gonna have to have you back at some. Yeah, point. Yeah, dude, I'm man. looking forward to that book now. I want that yeah. book. Yeah, like oh, it's my god. god. That's great, great stuff, man. I I really appreciate you taking the time to come and uh, no chat with us. And uh, yeah, man, it's it was great. Tons yeah, of. No, uh, I had fun. I'm, yes. I'm I'm happy and honored to be on your podcast. So yeah, well, well, you're, well you're, you're coming back so we can talk some more, you know, crazy ass shit. And plus, if yeah. we actually have scientific questions, you know, yeah, hey, no problem. I'm, I'm willing to give it again, give it a go. Yeah. Cool. cool. Yeah, cool, we cool, should cool. have a roundtable of all the people who are smarter than us um, come on and that's a lot. Like, like and go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys are great. You're good. <laughs> Oh, awesome. Very, very cool. Yeah, maybe we'll have to hit you up for some uh, student and the serpent stuff when we do. Oh, some, I'd love uh, that. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd yeah. Be cool. yeah. cool. All right. Um, do you want to throw out any uh, website, any, Instagram, stuff like that? Whatever you want. Anything? Oh, um, you can find me uh, the, the old school way. If, if you're a student, you'd be interested in doing grad school, the suicide grad degree that, you know, Lucas Lee is doing, who part of NPR network. Um, that's totally online. So you don't have to come to West Liberty. And if you're interested in coming to West Liberty, we offer that too, a fellowship. So you can take care of snakes and go to grad school, which is, you know, doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Um, so that, that emails Z Loafman, L O U G H M A N at westliberty.edu. Um, but you can also just find me on Facebook, Zach Loafman, um, and message me. That's, you know, I'm on there all the time. So that's a good way to get a hold of me. And then, my my students said you got to get Instagram, old man. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So I'm on Instagram, and uh, you can either find me by searching for my name, Zach Loafman, or I'm Doctor Crawdad on there. So okay. there wait, you go. Wait till Lucas gets out there. He's gonna be gonna need a YouTube channel, old man. <laughs> yes, he'll be right where we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, Lucas is doing great. Good. And, and I would be remiss. Um, you know, uh, I have a graduate student named Alex Schmacht, and he's a Mer Marilia head. He has a whole bunch of inlands. So oh, there's, there's Alex. Oh, shout yet. out here. Right. Oh. Some inlands. That's mm -hmm. very nice. cool. We, we already One. like him. Now you're yeah. talking my language. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. All right. Um, I guess, uh, why don't you close this out, Owen, and we'll call it a day. All right, so uh, you, we are Morelia Python Radio and proud members of the Morelia Python Radio Network with complete with its how many goddamn shows is it now? <laughs> Six? Seven? Carpet Cliff Notes, Galubric Corner, Student of the Serpent, Carpets and Coffee, and Humans of Herp the Culture. Yeah, and you got two more Carpet, coming. Carpet Cliff Notes? Did you say that? Yeah, I said that, yeah. All right. You got uh, Justin's yeah, working on the show and Nick's working yep, on the yep, show. Yep, yep, yep. So yeah, there you go. You got that. And what about your nipper thingy? Oh, oh my the god! Field the field podcast. Oh, nipper, how could I forget? What is wrong with you? We just finished up. Uh, we just finished up the first episode. I think it's going to be epic. I'm, oh, um, I, I can't wait. For that I, one. I that think. One's gonna be good. I, can't I think it's going to be a good one. It's um, it's called what, what 
when things can go wrong in the field. Um, oh my god! <laughs> I I don't know why we picked such a dark topic. To <laughs> I know start, why because it's great. Start the start the, the the podcast with. But I can't wait. You know, That's gonna be so cool. Oh, it's so good, man. There's some great stories. Some 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 really cool stuff. Uh, it's awesome. it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and for us, uh, you can find us at MarleyPythonRadio.net. Com. Com? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Wait a minute. I'll get out of the way. I've only been, you, you normally do half of this. All right. And then I do the other well, what you're uh, doing you can... now is you're making me do things that we don't normally do. And right. then you're okay. surprised when it hits a wall. <sighs> God, I think after 11 years, you'd get it. Good we Lord. We haven't got to um, 11 years. This is the 11th year. I'll be better after 12, I promise. Murray Python Radio Network. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. If you want to email us, you can send an email to info at MurrayPythonRadio.com. You want to follow Eric E.B. Morelia is Facebook and Instagram. Riley's at Riley Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram. Lucas is at Centralian Exotics on Facebook and Instagram. And Owen is at Rogue underscore reptiles there at facebook goes. and instagram uh, you want to support the show with uh, merch go to teespring store uh npr network uh, you can uh, check stuff out there uh, if you want to support us as far as patreon goes um you can go to morelia python radio at patreon and help us there you other than that, that list and i'll be better prepared next time i did <laughs> <laughs> i was terrified that was gonna be the answer oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> The only thing well, you just say good night. <laughs> Damn it. All right. Well, on that note, um, we'll say thanks to you all for listening, and we'll catch everybody back here next week for some more of Rayleigh Python Radio. I'm not fired. Good night. <laughs>